This week, we welcome Bryson Bort. He's the founder and CEO at Scythe. He's going to talk about attack simulation. In the technical segment this evening, Corey Finley will be presenting a tool he created for internal network segmentation or segment reconnaissance using broadcast and service discovery protocol traffic. In the security news, why Hyatt is launching a bug bounty program, Amazon Key partners with MyQ, web vulnerabilities are up, IoT flaws are down according to one source, enterprise iPhones will soon be able to use an inconvenient security did I say inconvenient? That wasn't in my... T- a security dongle. And how El Chapo's IT manager cracked the encryption in chats uh, and brought him down. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Organizations' internal networks are overly permissive and can't distinguish trusted from untrusted applications. Attackers abuse this condition to move ladder through networks bypassing address-based controls to spread malware. Edgewise abstracts security policies away from traditional network controls that rely on IP addresses, ports, and protocols, and instead ties controls directly to applications. Edgewise allows organizations to analyze the network attack surface and segment workloads based on the software and how it's communicated. Edgewise monitors applications and protects data paths using zero-trust segmentation. Visit edgewise.net forward slash security weekly to get your free month of visibility. Some restrictions apply. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who comes from a very special place. They say men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but Paul, he's from Stupidus. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Paul's Security Weekly. Paul, the man from Stupider, right? I felt like I was like in elementary school all over again, Larry. Thank you. Uh, today, especially, uh, I think it was important to, to feel yes, like I was, I was in, in elementary, elementary school. Okay. Right? Uh, this is episode 589, recorded on January 10th, 2019, in G Unit Studios in Rhode Island, where uh, Larry Pesce is sitting next to me. Larry, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Nice to have you. On this day of days. Yes. Happy day of uterine escape. Yes. Today is my birthday. Yes. It's very weird to read 2019 and have. I'm like, wow, I made it this far. Good. Good. Made it another year. Clearly, I've done something wrong. I'm like, crap, it's my birthday. Crap, I'm one year older. Uh, Damn it. How did I see that? Yeah. On the Uh, lines remotely, Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us. Jeff, welcome. Good to be on. I am, I am, I think the first time joining you from a hotel room somewhere in Philadelphia and uh, happy birthday. And, uh, you are fast approaching the age where you have more memories than dreams. Right. 
Right. Thanks for reminding me, Jeff. But also make me feel good because you're a lot older than, than I am. So as as is yes, Joff Dyer, I, I mean, that's I'm glad you guys are here because I feel and, much better. And in, and, in, and in Jeff's case, he probably doesn't have all that many memories left. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Mr. Joff Dyer is here with us. Joff, welcome to the program this evening. Uh, g'day, Paul. I'm blurry. Why am I blurry? Okay. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's the drink. You're, uh, just, you're, just, like, you're just like Blakefoot. You uh, hide in out of focus areas. That's right. No, no, I just wanted to say, Paul, happy birthday. Thank and, you. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, it's not about getting older. It's about getting better tools as you get older. Interesting. I'll work on that. Um, so this year <laughs> at the RSA Conference 2019 is, of course, the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity, data, innovation, and thought leadership, March 4th through the 8th. Uh, we'll be there in San Francisco for RSA. I will be presenting... Uh, I, f- I looked up what I was presenting on because I I, pre- I like did like four <laughs> submissions and one got accepted. But they didn't tell you which one. No, they well no not in the acceptance. So I finally like logged into the oh, site the geez. other day and it'll be on the Docker security, which will be a lot of fun. Um, so we have a discount code. Uh, you can go to rsaconference.com forward slash security weekly dash us 19. The discount code is 5U9SWFD to receive $100 off your conference pass. Uh, I would like to welcome our special guest, Bryson Bort. He is the founder and CEO of Scythe. He's been on the program uh, before. And their landing page over at Scythe, which everyone can go visit, find out more information uh, and register for a demo is scythe.io forward slash security weekly. Bryson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy birthday. Um, I'll keep things light and just say the only thing I regret is that I can't give you an awkward hug in person. Oh, I I will uh, take a rain check on the awkward hug. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm good for it. I'll see you in San Francisco. Awesome. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun at uh, RSA. Um, so, uh, Bryson, you've been on the show uh, before, and I wanted to just start off and um, kind of get our audience up to date on attack simulation. It's been a growing category in my mind over the past couple of years. Um, you know, kind of take us through where we were and, and how we got to where we are today. Sure. It's, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to start with what's out there. And certainly, as we've been building this tool, um, we've been trying to figure out where do we fit in the pantheon of things that are available already to the public. Um, And certainly, there are open source penetration testing tools. There's professional penetration testing kind of tools like Cobalt Strike. Um, And those are forms of an expert way to penetrate an enterprise and establish um, some equivalent of adversarial simulation. And then on the other side, you have the new industry segment of breach and attack simulation. And breach and attack simulation is a mix of U.S. and Israeli firms who all raised a lot of money to educate the market on what they think breach and attack simulation is. Uh, The challenge, I think, when you look at that, because when you talk about adversarial simulation, what is an adversary? An adversary represents a living person or organization that has specific goals that is dynamically moving through phases of trying to get to something that's of interest to them out of your organization. Bryson, sorry, speaking uh, of uh, attack simulation and adversary simulation, Carlos Perez is here with us from TrustedSec. You weren't up on my screen, Carlos, and I totally forgot to introduce you. I apologize. Welcome to the program. Don't worry. 
I, I forgive you. Oh, his birthday. mic is muted. Uh, no, I Carlos, you're not. His mic's no, not, not muted. No. <laughs> Carlos, you there? Carlos, yes. do you want us to simulate you? <laughs> <laughs> he, he likes been he likes being simulated. Carlos, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, he's, sorry. He's been cussing you out. Since yeah, I forgot to sorry, him. brother. So Johnny he muted your mic. Your oh headset. boy, Carlos is just gonna stab me one day when I'm not expecting it, and I'm gonna totally deserve it. <laughs> Welcome, All Carlos. All depends what TCA will allow me to bring with me. That's right. That's right. Sorry, Bryson. Continue. Uh, so when you're looking at the BAS space, the current industry offering is more controls validation than adversarial simulation. They allow you to replay traffic. They allow you to do discrete things on an endpoint. But none of that chains together. There's no nothing lateral. There's nothing that allows you to demonstrate overall business impact. Uh, and that's where we kind of found out that we fit this middle of the road of we're continuous red team automation, uh, where the BAS market does continuous and automated they don't do adversarial simulation. They're not red team. And then um, just like pretty much everybody on this call where you have Trusted Sec, Black Hills, and in Guardians who all do red team services, and then the professional tool set that's used to do adversarial simulation, that some of those are tools they've built. Some of those are other tools that they use. That does the adversarial part, but it doesn't do continuous and automated uh, assessment across an enterprise. And uh, what I'm finding, uh, too, is a lot of differences in these uh, in these tools, um, some that allow you to do varying levels of customization. And at Scythe, I, I think you really kind of took that to heart that people would want to have their own payloads and such, correct? Absolutely. So we built it from the ground up to be modular. Uh, the software development kit that we provide to customers is the same one that we've used internally to, to build out. I think that's important to note that because that was built into design. It's not like it was something we added on afterward and, oh, that'd be really good if we let other people do some things. No, it, it was built that way from the start. And so what we try to do for most places is here's an 80% solution. A lot of the rote things that you have to do to do adversarial simulation, like I need a set of relays. I need to have these kinds of communications. I need to have these kinds of capabilities on endpoints and in the network. We provide those out of the box, and then we allow you to add your own modules and build out your own arsenal. And that's a place where, uh, for example, I'll throw it to Joff at Black Hills, um, where we're looking for Black Hills, who's a customer, to build out that arsenal for what works for them. And then later in 2019, uh, we're going to offer a marketplace where they'll be able to resell and share a lot of the things that they've built internally. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that. That's, that's really great. No one else is doing that to my knowledge. Uh, Bryson, that's awesome. Now, when um, the people on the defenders team, right? I mean, the red teamers that are, you know, working for an enterprise are, I mean, kind of like a dotted line to the blue team, right? I mean, their goal uh, is also defense. Um, but when they get a hold of these types of tools, right? Uh, open source commercial or whatever, I think some of the goals are kind of interesting. I think some can show you where some of your weaknesses are, but are those weaknesses in your actual systems or are those weaknesses in your defense or are they both? 
and I, I think some of those goals are kind of different, right? I remember when we first started talking about this, Bryson, you said specifically that one of the things was to see if your defenses and or products that you've implemented are working or not. Is that still very much the case? Yeah, so what we look at is, again, this is the advantage of the, the red team perspective, is you're testing the holistic defenses of an enterprise. Because it's not just technology, it's not just controls, it's also the people element. And people are the employees, which I like to think are the greatest surface area in any organization. And then it's also the staff, the blue team, the incident response. How quickly can they respond? And then when you bring in the tool piece, that's where it's what tools are able to find what things, and then how are those folks able to identify and determine what is a compromise, the extent of that compromise, and the challenge, of course, is if you're on the blue team, you're overwhelmed by information. Your SOC is being inundated with tons of false positives. And so being able to replay traffic through that and replay actual adversarial actions through that, you can start to bring down that noise by tailoring in the sensors throughout your enterprise at the endpoint level and at the network to exactly what you want to be looking for. Um, one other example, we had a, a phone call today with somebody who leads the threat detection team at uh, a major Fortune 50. And he was looking at how he can use this tool. Their red team already uses it. And he was looking at ways to use this tool to be able to validate detections. And he's already surpassed everything that he's already been able to find on the market. Um, and so it was useful that his red team was already using this because that allowed him yet another avenue where the red team could demonstrate something, throw that over to him, and now he has the ability to replay that internally. Yeah, that's that's really big. Um, more questions for Bryson, and I think Bryson, you have a demo too. But uh, I know you know Larry, well, Joff, Carlos, you all work very closely in this you know specific space. So I I just wanted to add in a comment. Um, you know, first of all, Bryson, I'm sorry I haven't been in contact. I've been a little busy, but um, the um, that you know, Black Hills. We are looking looking at the product. We we, we do have it uh, as a customer, um, and uh, we're starting to use it in in some of our engagements uh, to automate um, the the uh, attack simulation portion, and uh, which which we call C two pivots. But it really is given a position on the inside of a network. We we get to uh, start to move around that network and and see what we can get to. Uh, whether we can escalate locally, whether we can escalate uh, domain-wise, whether we can actually laterally move in the environment. So we see uh, the, what Scythe's offering as, as potentially a, uh, a way to um, uh, accelerate that, that process um, for us because a lot, of, a lot of the efforts that we make are, um, are fairly uh, manually intensive. And so a tool like this, I think, can, can really help uh, with, with the assessment. But... But I think I'd caution people not to go too far either. Uh, and I think that's where um, I think Scythe has done a good job uh, of allowing customers to be able to extend the product uh, and to uh, customize it. I think that's a, a really a critical piece because um, I don't think it's it, it's not like it's not that it, the uh, the potential attack surface is static, right? We always need to develop and innovate. So. Anyway, yeah, Jeff, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to something you and I have talked about over the last couple of years about that, which is, I mean, at a place like Black Hills, you know, what makes you special? And it's the talented and experienced hackers that you have on staff who are able to do research and think through uh, attack space and attack surface as it's changing and adapting on the fly, 
right? And automation is just there to take a lot of the rote pieces off of you and then extend the framework or bring in your own tools and own scripts to on the fly work with what you see there in the customer environment. Um, and that's where we see the, the markets going from our roadmap is to go as broad as possible to cover as many platforms so that you have the, the levers to pull and build into not to replace the experienced hacker. Yeah, I think that's an important point too. I mean, because if you can get a, you know, we all need repeatable processes, right? And and that's automation is definitely helpful in that area. But but on top of that, we need creativity to be able to extend beyond just the repeatable process because that's what where the value add is for a penetration testing company. Um, and uh, some of that's automatable, and some of that is not. Um, but where we can automate, we're all better off for it. Um, so, you know, the extensibility is, is, is really helpful. But anyway, I was wondering if uh, Larry had a thought in this area as well. I don't. You guys did a, a, a pretty good job. But uh, I do know that, uh, you know, we've had some, some great discussions, at least our team with Bryson, uh, about the product and, um, you know, great, amazing stuff. Bryson, does uh, simulation do it kind of a disservice? And uh, in, in can you kind of expand upon that? Because I think there's a lot of different, like you hire a pen test team, they bring in their own custom tools. You've got Metasploit, you've got other tools, commercial, open source, ones that are testing MITRE ATT&CK. Is it, how much of it is a simulation and how much of it is actual malware that's on the system but not doing any harm? Sure. Um, I mean, it's really semantics. I mean, what is a simulation? A simulation is where I'm demonstrating something without actually doing it. Um, for example, we have ransomware modules. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think any enterprise would appreciate having ransomware, right. whether it was simulated or not, that <laughs> actually took something down, right? You can't affect operations. And so what we do for something like ransomware is we will on the box simulate the same kind of processing and file encryption that you would have with um, uh, files that we create up on the spot as opposed to locking the uh, file system itself. And then you know you essentially spray tag that and note that that machine would have fallen prey to ransomware. And then you can look at the endpoint to see, do the sensors detect the kinds of ransomware activities short of the machine locking? And then on the network, do you see the traffic back to the C2 server? That's mm -hmm. uh, the same kind of thing you would see in a real-world scenario where that traffic goes back to note, hey, this machine is now owned, and what do we do? Um, that's, I think, the difference between simulation and then the actual thing. Um, because at the end of the day, we've built the actual thing that you, you draw up to specification. Uh, it's just a question of what does it actually do? What is the behaviors that it exhibits? And those are completely under the customer control. Mm. Jeff? Yeah, that, that, that's why I... I uh, this Close. is Carlos, sorry. That's okay. Uh, this is why I see it more... Uh, I, I hear other vendors say red team simulation, and I have my issues when I hear red team simulation, but it's not actual red team. It's uh, Red team is more strategic than tactical. This is more tactical. So when I see tools like this, the uh, what comes to my mind is unit testing. This is like mm. a way for you to do unit testing on your controls, unit testing on the products, your ADR, uh, your hips, uh, and the other types of technological stuff that you have in your environment. I, that's very well said, Carlos. I, I never 
it's I mean, is it unit testing your QA? I, I think that's kind of you know mincing words, but um, I, I I like that as a, an analogy, right? You would put in a software development lifecycle, right? You would develop code. I well, in a perfect world, you would develop code, do some unit testing on that code, and then push it to QA, and they would do testing and find bugs. And, and I'm laughing because we all know it doesn't always happen that way. And, and this is a way for you to replicate that in your security program. Is that is that yeah. a fair assessment, uh, Bryson? Yeah, so imagine doing that in real life. Um, different employees are going to use that code differently uh, based on where they are, whether that's remote or different parts even inside the infrastructure because mm -hmm. there might be different controls. Um, how does that affect that? Uh, and then, I mean, so combining those behaviors, combining those different environments, um, combining the different pieces, and then the challenge for Red Team has always been, how do I continuously do that? How do I do that at scale? Um, because when you're looking at an enterprise, an enterprise can be 10,000 folks and 50,000 endpoints. And it's really hard for an average red team engagement to be able to effectively exercise all of that at multiple levels. And you certainly can't do it continuously because they scope the time and the budget where you get the snapshot as opposed to being able to do the replays. Jeff. Oh, Jeff, I think you're muted. Oh, don't. Now I will speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you're, you're starting to answer the the question in, in the dialogue the last minute or two. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm listening to the capability and what this does, and because I'm immersed back in that three letter world wor world uh, of PCI, uh, I, I don't I don't immediately think of a PCI role requirement that uh, I can point to and say, oh, if, if people had SI, they could meet this requirement. But I, I don't want to, I, I want to ask a more open-ended question, not to get bottled up in PCI, but in general, how, do, how you know, beyond what you're talking about so far in terms of red teams, you know, how, how do you sell this into an organization? Uh, because many times organizations, uh, you know, their budget is already spent on a lot of technologies or or there's people within an organization that really want it but they got to justify the spend to their management you know what are your thoughts on on you know either because many companies organizations they point to regulatory compliance to to justify a lot of their security spend uh you know what do you what, what do you offer you know how what is your approach to companies that it's not you know they don't clearly have a red team they don't clearly have a this or that uh, but they would still benefit from from using the, this tool sure so the the market segment I think that captures what you're talking about is is our mid-sized companies they are 500 people 1,000 people uh, they tend to be in the middle of the country doing, um, you know, whatever that that business is. Um, they typically have a fairly robust IT staff, but they don't have access other than through outsourcing to offensive security talent. So, mm -hmm. you know, it how do I how do I bring what's effectively? I because mixing things here, I think of offensive security personnel as kind of like creative talent because it's it's a mix of art and science with experience. And it's very hard to recruit those kinds of folks into remote locations for where these companies are. So what do you do? Um, and 
the way we look at it is what we've built is a very low barrier to entry, doesn't require experience. Um, we'll do a demo here in a few minutes and everyone can see just how easy it is to use. But it's a coloring book for a company like that to be able to have their sys admins, their IT folks run this and get to start to have a red team capability in-house that while it can't replace the kind of thing you would get from any of the three companies that I mentioned that are here um, on this webcast, but it's something that you can do continuously and it's something that you can start to test things internally. You get to do that QA um, on your own. Right. Yeah. So you, okay. you get you get better value out of uh, you know somebody that actually you know has that talent the the as you put it uh, the hired talent as it were um, the creative folks uh, do the the automated part first do all that simulation mm. and fix the problem so you get more value out of the people that think outside of the box and find the things that all that other stuff didn't find that made. this is a no brainer well like uh, really as as a follow up question. What percentage of the capability do you see as sort of an extension of the pen test uh, aspect of sort of whether we think it should be or not vulnerability discovery or like you you know like you mentioned being able to reach everything uh, versus more of a uh, a tr I keep coming up with the word training tool tr term training tool where you're you know teaching and educating you know what little you know overworked uh, stressed out IT security staff you have that are responsible for detection and catching things so I, I guess how much of this tool can be used sort of as a learning tool or a training tool uh, you know Paul alluded to it could be tied into you know maybe software development but you know similar to that how, how much of the how much of the tool can be used more as a as a you know uh, training uh, you know live fire test type of uh, uh, exercise versus simply the you know scalability of finding all the vulnerabilities in places you couldn't ordinarily reach because you can't afford that level of a of a pen test from a premier pen testing company um, I mean I don't I don't know how to chalk up percentages I do know when you look at training blue team training has always struggled with how do I provide something that's realistic and not contrived so that you can mm -hmm. effectively teach the various functions for the blue team and it's difficult because, of course, uh, the red team or the offensive side doesn't want to share those pieces because then it makes it much harder for them to operate in an environment. Um, I'm, I'm happy to note that uh, Rapid7 actually is a customer, and they use us to solve that very problem in their formal blue team training that they give out in industry. So we already have a demonstrated use case in the real world of formal training using our tool across a five-day scenario with multiple pieces all the way from forensics to different kinds of network traffic analysis um, to, to, to teach that. And it's very easy, of course, to bring that in-house. Um, I think what you might be getting toward, Jeff, is the purple team perspective of combining red team operations and blue team operations in the operational environment with that kind of shared intelligence. Um, and mm -hmm. that's something we're working toward. I don't think we have it solved right now. Okay. Now, the answer to the question of how you do percentages is you just make stuff up and sound convincing and we'll believe you. Well, Jeff, 9 out of 10 statistics are made up on the spot. 
Exactly. And you can, and you can only read 80% of what you hear on the internet. <laughs> oh, Bryson, did you say you had a demo? <laughs> yeah, let's do the demo. You, you want to get to the demo? I think this is a good segue into the demo. <laughs> all right, all right. I want to read the demo. I want to experience the demo. All right, put your 3D glasses on. I got my, I got my glasses on. I don't know if they're 3D or not. If I had drink enough uh, alcohol, they are 3D. It's awesome. Well, first, I have to orient you to our highly technical diagram. So we're going to be in the upper <laughs> left corner. We're going to log into our site server, and we're going to launch. Uh, we're going to build a campaign, and we're going to launch a campaign against an enterprise. Um, of course, I did this as a recorded demo because I know better than trying for the Peter Principle of or Murphy's Law of everything going wrong. Mm -hmm. You're a very wise man. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that out loud. Uh, We're all thinking. So, uh, <laughs> so our, our server can be an on-premise server slip that you, said you have to, to work with, or it can be a SaaS instance. You get your own dedicated SaaS instance. So what we're going to do, we're going to log in. And we're multi-tenant, so we can handle multiple users on a, on a server. And we're going to build a campaign. And a campaign consists of three parts. Controls, where and when can it run, so you're able to control that this isn't something that can splash because it, as an implant, it, this is, has the potential to go somewhere that you might not intend. And then communications. So communications... Are, there are different communication modules on here. Three that I want to call out because they are Google and Twitter. Both of those are actual Google and Twitter domains. So it looks like it's going to Google Sheets or it looks like it's going to the Twitter domain. And that's for all command and control and data exfiltration. And then steganography, which allows you to upload images. And then through encrypted HTTP, um, the command and control and the exfiltration is all embedded inside those pictures. Bryson, sorry, a quick question in terms of defense against uh, backdoors like that that are using Twitter and social media for backdoor communications. Uh, how many people can actually catch that today? I don't know how to answer that. It's mm. um, really a question of, again, going back to network traffic analysis, what do you flag? Um, and then where we're trying to shift things, and this is where I like what the uh, part of what the MITRE attack framework has also been pushing, is we need to move to a behaviorally focused defensive perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's less, oh, that's over Google protocol, and it's more, well, what are the behaviors being exhibited, and what's my ability to correlate those behaviors to a benign or a malicious intent? Gotcha. And that's where we like our users to, to focus that emphasis. And that's a lot of what I like about the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so this also highlights two of the three levels of customization. Um, there's, of course, the default settings for any particular module that I pick. And then, as you can see below, um, context-sensitive parameters. And those parameters allow you to do lots of different modifications because... Uh, for example, like heartbeat or jitter in the HTTP packet um, traffic. Um, and then the third level, which we'll demonstrate, well, which I'll quickly show later, is the ability to build your own modules and import them into this. Um, and this is something that we're in discussions with multiple different 
service providers, uh, like I talked about rolling out a marketplace later this year mm -hmm. where they'll be able to share the modules that they've built. And then we're in discussions with um, folks on the cyber threat side on ways to adapt sticks and taxi to automatically be able to import those threats from these things. Mm -hmm. And then the final piece is we're looking at a particular scripting framework um, that will allow folks to use it. It's open source. I won't announce it yet, but it's going to be coming out here in the next month um, where you'll be able to build simple scripts into that and then automatically import them into modules here. Uh, the advantage being as opposed to something that allows you to do essentially a limited unit test, you can now chain those unit tests together to reflect, again, the way an adversary acts, which is chaining multiple pieces together over an overall enterprise. Nice. Uh, and then capabilities here, um, of course, call out for the red teams. Uh, unmanaged PowerShell is a, an available module. And then we also include SMB Relay down here as well as in communications, um, just reflecting that ability. And then this is the newest thing that we've released uh, that's really cool. So that's what it took to manually build a campaign. Um, that's something that anybody can do and end up with an implant that has really interesting capabilities. On top of that, you have the option to build the TTPs or the automated logic into the implant itself. And that's what we're going to demonstrate here is the I have the actions, which are the capabilities, and then those capabilities have specific things they're able to do. And then there's logic that I can build into it. That logic can be delays or branch logic. So I can wait a period of time to do something, which defeats a lot of defensive capabilities. Or I have the ability for the implant to do analysis where based on what it can see at that endpoint, and then conduct actions of different types based on what it sees. So what we're building up here is a classic stage zero APT that lands, calls back to the C2 server, dynamically loads additional capabilities onto the endpoint, which get incorporated into the binary. So this is something that's already deployed in a compromise scenario. And then I have the ability to call back additional scripts or have that execute specific commands. And that was that window we just had pop up. So this is part of where you can see third-party integration. Um, because in those areas, I can call back to other scripts or I can call back to other tools that are hosted on the server that aren't even completely integrated into the Scythe platform. Um, that could be something like Metasploit. That could be something like your own script to you know, steal credentials independent of what we've already got included. And uh, So Bryson, as, as you're building this... Um uh, well, I guess the goal is to be caught by some kind of endpoint protection at some point, or like, uh, how much do you get swallowed up by some of the endpoint protection, or is like the initial foothold you, that you're building pretty stealthy as well? Uh, so I will only answer with what we've seen, which is we uh, don't get caught. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Now that there's lots of reasons for that, but fundamentally it's not a question of getting caught or not caught. It's about determining what are, you know, what's that, that right tension of where these things should be looking and where those sensors should be going off. In some cases you want to validate that your controls or that your tools are working. Mm -hmm. In other cases you don't. Right. Um, we were, um, last month we had a deployment, um, at a bank, uh, and, 
the pen tester who was running it calls us up and he's like, um, they're not seeing anything I'm doing. Is there any advice you can give me on how to make this even louder so they will finally catch it? <laughs> I like it. That's when you, I, I was going to suggest that you know, from a UX perspective, instead of that delay drop down with all the boxes to check, you just have the volume control and of course it needs to go to 11. Now, was the answer download terabytes of porn to their domain controller until it runs out of disk space? Uh, that's kind of where we ended up, but <laughs> we gave them a, a series of escalating actions to increase the size and the frequency of the traffic to the point where it's like, all right, well, I don't know what that is, but it's something and it clearly is big, so maybe I should take a look. Uh, and that's where, that's where you end up. Mm. Um. And then you have the ability to save all of that. So the implant we built to specification and then the logic that we built into it, we can save that automatically to an internal threat catalog. So with one button, we can bring that back up at any time for future campaigns. So this is the, the replay piece. Um, what's interesting is you also have two options. You can replay with the same implant signature or um, the tool the platform automatically creates different signatures for every implant that's created. So even if you were to later on manually build the same thing, it would still have a different hash signature on the wire. So we've got our campaign here. And what we're going to do now is, and here you can see, so we have three options for the implant. You've got a an EXE, which would load onto hard drive. You've got DLL, which can load to be fileless malware. And you have a third option that's not presented here, which is you also can get this as shell code for deployment. But that's, that's the core piece is we've now created this implant to specification with all the command and control back to the server. It's all there. Uh, but we also offer the option to, for deployment. We have two options, drive by download and then email phishing. Mm -hmm. um, both of those you can customize. We have built-in templates for them to use. So phishing, of course, being how 90 plus percent of all attacks are created. That's some of the most common and it's the easiest way to go across an entire enterprise. Here's the phishing attack from the user side. Um, this is the boring part of every offensive demo because, of course, it demonstrates that you don't see anything. It's mm -hmm. completely transparent to the user. Oh, so in you this embedded this payload in a, a Word document? Yes. In this case, it was a weaponized macro. Mm -hmm. um, we provide two different kinds of weaponized macros to deliver this. But, but Bryson, you can it, also it, bring your own payload. It didn't ask me if I wanted to run macros or not. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did, but uh, I automatically... Oh, it did? I didn't see that part. Yeah, it does. But the thing is, it always asks you to do sure. that, even for good, useful things. And this oh, is coming. Is. Okay, it did. You know, yeah. And you're going to be like, oh, okay. And so everyone enable, just clicks and that's yes. That's it. Yeah, everyone just clicks yes anyway. So it's already done. We can look at the process listing. Nothing shows up. But meanwhile, back at the server, now remember, this is the stage zero with the embedded logic that we built. And we can already see when we look in there and we see our desktop pop up as compromised, that it's already started to, to load additional modules. And then now what we're going to see is what it's done. So the capabilities. In this case, we run ARP. We run a specific command. We start doing some different things. All of that data is returned here to the server. 
So it's encrypted at rest, of course, and it's encrypted in transit. So there's no risk of it being actually compromised. But the point here is that you have a common place for your red team to be able to see who did what, where, when, and what was accomplished. Hmm. The other value to the user is this is my ability to establish business impact to the compromise. This person clicking a link is not the same as this person clicking a link. The value to the business is different, and you're able to demonstrate that through here. So this is the this um, this part here, which is the full listing of everything um, that gets integrated into Splunk, and that's your ability to do the thorough technical analysis of what happened. This is where you would sit down with the blue team and actually walk through to understand what we should have seen where, what things caught what, and what do we need to do to fix it? Okay, so the other thing is, of course, you can do manual operations. So through the GUI, you're able to open shell right on the box. And there we are, we're shell right on the endpoint. And we can, we can manually conduct all the commands we want. And at this point, you have arbitrary execution. So this is another example where you could also download other scripts or other tools and execute them as well. Yeah, that's nice in a, a purple team where the defense like, I'm, I'm still not seeing you do anything. So you can dump into this and try a whole bunch of stuff until they eventually, hopefully, find you, right? Correct. Do you ever do, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, you're getting right. warmer, <laughs> you're getting cold? <laughs> we, we, we leave that up to the client. <laughs> oh, the fun you could have. Okay, so at the end of all of that, um, you have the ability then to download two different kinds of executive summary reports. The first shows all of the different parts of the MITRE attack framework that were in scope of that assessment, and then a high-level summary of how successful they were. So with one click, you can see essentially what was the MITRE view of what was accomplished. And now, the other, uh, sorry. I was just gonna say, before you're saying that you saved this particular configuration, and can you just keep running this, Bryson, and get some kind of you know report that tells you about uh, the defense changing over time, whether it's getting better or worse? Yes, um, that's one of the things that I think is really cool. So I've had uh, CIOs and CISOs come back to me mm. and comment, "Well, this is great. You're going to continually find things that I already know are broken." Well, the other way to look at that is, what's your ability to do change management right now? Right. I identify that I need something to remediate. Mm -hmm. We then develop a fix. Takes X amount of time to develop and build and ostensibly test that fix, and then we deploy it. Mm -hmm. Well, what if? And, and of course, that's that's treating a project as very discrete. But there are chances that there are going to be interim steps, and there's going to be pieces that are done before the overall thing's deployed. This is your chance to see in real time. Well, in roughly real time. Did I actually improve? That's awesome. Now, can you can you modify that attack? Can you like rerun a scenario and go, yeah, I know that this technique works, but now I want you to go execute that attack, but without this technique. 
and and kind of see what happens. Yes. Um, I mean, there's two ways to answer that. One, of course, is you don't have to execute capabilities that you have. The other goes back to that ability that we demonstrated in the automation screen, which is I can add capabilities to a live campaign. Mm -hmm. So implants that are already in compromised hosts can have additional capabilities and communications modified in in the field from the C2 server, which is one that that's just like real life. Two, that's the kind of thing that your defense should be uh, attenuated to because that's yet another way that an attacker has to be noisy because the easiest place to catch an attacker is on the wire since there's nowhere for them to hide other than to blend into the other traffic. They can't defeat the laws of physics and not be on the wire. Yeah, and what's interesting is, like, can you uh, build scenarios and then change them, in other words, to kind of predict what would happen if a defensive control was in place? In other words, if your defensive recommendations say, everyone should upgrade to Windows 10, mm -hmm. and can you, like, prove them wrong and say, yeah, actually, upgrading in Windows 10 wouldn't do a damn thing for you because our scenarios would still run the same way, right? I would argue generically that that statement is absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, but, it's it's the same thing as um, also looking at cloud instances. I mean, at the end of the day, the endpoint operating system, whether it's physical, whether it's VM, whether it's cloud hosted, mm -hmm. that's transparent to something that's running on it. Right. Yeah, in, in, I guess that really speaks to defense, right, is your allowing the defenders to make intelligent decisions and prioritize effectively rather than just saying, well, you know, we'll, we're going to upgrade to this or do this and therefore we're going to be more secure. With a tool like this, you can say, actually, that could be a complete waste of time and we should do something else. Correct. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Because, I, I mean, uh, you know, being defenders in the past, right? how many times yes. we've, we've been in that scenario but not had the tools to really show what they should or shouldn't do, right? That's yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. And and even from the from the quote the red team perspective, that really has some value is that we tend to go down one path to achieve a goal mm -hmm. and we don't find all of the possible issues. Great, we found that one path to to that goal. Mm -hmm. Well, what are the other paths? Well take those capabilities here, we can fix that problem. What are some of the other capabilities? And that's to me that's brilliant. I, I agree. So that you can explore that, quote, red team mentality from multiple angles. I, in, in which saying, like, I actually was in one of my presentations years ago where I said, you know, I was doing pen testing. I'm like, like you said, I'd find a path, I'd achieve the goal. Yep. And then maybe I'd find another path. And then they'd want me to go test something else or do something else or review the findings or whatever. And then, I'm like, okay, now we concluded. And I'm like, I only explored two paths. Like, yeah, how many how were do there? I, how do I automate? What may be uh, like six or 12 other paths? And I think Bryson, uh, you know, your product has the answer to that, which is great. Well, so I'll, uh, I'll throw out the kudos to, to Black Hills. That's what they do. Mm. That's how they use it. Right. Um, again, going back to bringing in the talent into it, they use our tool to blanket multiple pathways. And then they have their talent come in and look at where can we go further and what parts are more interesting. Right, right. So it gives a lot more time to have them do individual research as a part of the project, as well as uh, a lot more time to then focus on really 
honing on specific things that are contextually interesting to the business as opposed to the fact that they've already blanketed everything. Awesome. Were there other things in the demo or Bryson, other things you want to share with our audience this evening? Sure. I'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up quickly here. So executive summary report, this is just a high level view of how this performed over the kill chain phases. Um, because of course, uh, adversarial campaigns are not monolithic. You want to be able to understand performance in each piece. The remedial suggestions are um, rather simple at the moment, but this is something that in the long term will get much more sophisticated as this is used, and that data is anonymously available back to support that use. Here's the threat catalog. The threat catalog I described earlier, these are one clicks where it already has real-world malware built a specification along with the TTPs of how they operate built in. And then the next thing we'll show is the MITRE ATT&CK wizard. So if you want to be able to demonstrate different parts of the MITRE ATT&CK framework, we have those built in already um, into the threat catalog, as well as we have a wizard that shows you how to do any particular part of uh, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, um, including using our platform, because there are going to be things you have to do um, beyond our platform, or some of them you can do, of course, just with our platform. And then I'll skip ahead here. Um, here you can see the different users, so everybody can see what everyone's doing. Um, this is an example of creating your own modules and how they integrate at the GUI. And then the final piece we show, is, of course, is there's the big red button. Uh, with one click, because of course you can build a schedule in when these things expire so they don't run if they run land somewhere they're not supposed to or when. But with the one big red button, you can make all instances go away from your enterprise so you maintain complete control over the campaign at all times. Nice. And that is the conclusion of our demo. Sweet. And uh, Bryce, I'm assuming on if you go to scythe.io forward slash security weekly, uh, the action you want people to take is to uh, sign up for a demo, correct? Uh, well, we, we just gave the demo, so we're sure. welcome to do another demo to talk through specific use cases for them. Um, additionally, in December, we launched the ability for uh, folks to uh, sign up for a free trial. Um, the only thing we do for the free trial is just vet that um, people are legitimate because sure. this is a real tool right. that could do real damage. Right. Uh, but other than that, just making sure that folks uh, are what they say they are, um, we give them uh, two weeks to play with it in their own environment. That's free. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So like Bryson said, there was the demo. If you are interested in more and you want a free trial, site.io forward slash security weekly. Bryson, that's great. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Paul. And again, happy birthday. Thank you. And with that, we'll take a short break, come back, and go into our technical segment for this evening. Stay tuned. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash PSW. Active Countermeasures, make every analyst a hunter.
The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This, believe it or not, is the technical segment, even though there's some ridiculous things I have to get through uh, and not so ridiculous things like an announcement. So if you're interested in quality over quantity and having meaningful conversations rather than just a badge scan, April 1st through the 3rd, Disney's Contemporary Resort, InfoSec World 2019. There is a discount code. We will be there. I will be presenting OS19-SecWeek for 15% off the main conference or a world pass. Uh, also, we uh, would like to welcome our new sponsor, Thinks. Am I reading that in this one? Am I? Okay. Think, uh, it, Haroon's really awesome, and you should buy his stuff. How is that for resounding enjoy? <laughs> but I think you guys will back me up on that, right? Haroon's been on the show and uh, is just hilarious on all the calls that I've been on with him so far recently. Oh, yeah. I missed Haroon, and now uh, his uh, company, Thinks, uh, is a proud sponsor of Paul Security Weekly, awesome. and you should go to securityweekly.com. It's actually forward slash canary, because uh, canary is easier to spell and say than thinks, in my opinion. So I made it securityweekly.com forward slash canary makes deception uh, devices that are really awesome. It's got some open source stuff there as well. So um, let's see. The next thing, it's my birthday today, and so we had cake. I, I blew up my candles, and then the cake disappeared, <laughs> which... It's awesome. And uh, I have this, what I thought was champagne, but is one of the celebration things. So to celebrate my birthday, which is really, it's really special because I'm 42 now. And <laughs> the, uh, life, the, answer, the answer to life, the universe, and yeah, everything. My wife got me this t-shirt that says uh, life, the universe, and everything. And it's a Venn diagram. And in the middle, it's 42. Oh, I thought it would be an arrow pointing down. No. <laughs> <laughs> be a really small universe, Larry. Yeah. Uh, so, to celebrate my that I'm now 42, uh, we're gonna turn I the keep ducking, Larry. Oh my God! I almost broke a light. <laughs> Did I break a light, or is that bulb supposed to be out? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I managed to not... Oh, I did get some of my drink. Oh, so you have to drink some of the confetti. And with that, Corey, that was all for you, really. Uh, Corey Finley is here with us. He got to start in information security in July. At 2014, is a junior security engineer. Today, he is an offensive security engineer. He is here tonight to talk about his very own uh, project, PK... Recon. Did I get that right? Did I say that? Larry, annotate that that's wrong. <laughs> no, I don't actually. Corey, welcome to the program this evening. <laughs> thanks, man. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday, dude. Hey, thanks, man. It's good to have you here. I know we chatted at uh, DerbyCon about having you on the show to tell us about PKT Recon. Did I say that right? Is that right? Yeah, this I spell it that way. I just I call it Packet Recon. But Packet yeah, Recon. All righty. Yeah. Corey, take it away and tell us all about it. So I, uh, I did a blog post uh, in summer uh, of last year about uh, doing uh, recon on internal network segments with broadcast and uh, service discovery protocol traffic. Uh, basically, you know, uh, a, a silent and passive way of, of gathering all the data that you would want to know um, about devices about nodes on an internal network that you might want to go after 
uh, to conduct further attacks. Uh, yeah, so the idea was basically that, you know, you can find all of this data, you know, like host names, IP addresses, uh, Windows uh, fingerprints, um, potential, you know, SMB server fingerprints, Samba fingerprints, um, and switch fingerprints via, you know, Cisco Discovery Protocol and uh, LLDP. Um, so kind of writing a tool that can go through a, a, a packet capture, you know, and and uh, be able to get that kind of data um, without ever having to actually actively touch uh, a host on the network. Is, and Corey, was, you don't you don't need a span port for this or a network tap, right? No, this it's, it, all... it's basically using uh, just just um, traffic that's broadcasted. Or um, I I like I dreamed that a tool like this would exist. Several, in fact, Carlos, I think you and I talked about a tool like this when we were looking into various protocols at at one point. But like, it really be nice to have a tool because when I would look at packet captures and other other tools, it would contain snippets of this discovery protocol information. Yes. I'm like, ah, oh, be really cool to have a tool that just did that. And you know, it, what does Mike Poor say? If you click your heels three times and think about it really hard, you'll go do a Google search and find it on the internet. Corey, you or or if you or if you ask a group of infosec professionals, man, wouldn't it be nice if we had yeah, this a tool for that, right? And, and then, asking oh. you shall receive. So, Corey, thank you. This this is great. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you. Um, and and yeah, you know, I and I always you know like to make it clear that it's no substitute for for tools that do active scanning or enumeration. Sure. Uh, it's not going to, you know, be as accurate. But um, if you if you're on a network, you know, that has Windows browser traffic and LDP and uh, CDP and um, oh, and, you know, and then there's but Corey, like, not just Windows, but uh, when it was OS 10 and now Mac OS, very very chatty on those discovery. Carlos, what were the ones that you did? You do some research on that, or did we just talk about it one time? I think we we only talked about it. I, I remember we we're talking about uh, LLMR, CDP, uh, and there were a couple other more. Uh, that right now I rem I remember the conversation came out that you mentioned CDP and me going back and saying, oh, let me look at it, and then came back, oh, the industry is moving away from CDP mm. to this other protocol, and we went kind of from there and also talking about uh, PBS related to it. Right, right. Yeah, so this is this is awesome, Corey. Continue, please. Oh, yeah. So um, basically, and just, you know, like uh, um, uh, he had mentioned as well, uh, LMNR uh, definitely is, is something that we can get data from. And um, it's just, it's really awesome to, to, you know, basically my goal was to create a tool that can get this data silently um, and basically, you know, you get on a network, the, the first thing that you can do is do a packet capture before anything else, right? And so, um, or just, you know, the tool also does support doing active uh, uh, packet captures um, on the network interface is just the output <laughs> is uh, currently in progress on that, so. Oh, so sorry, Code, do you have that feature today? Can I actively sniff? Um, you can actively sniff. It just, uh, it's not going to output the data properly. That's gotcha. not a done yet. I kind of, the first step was kind of just being able to capture those packets and forward them on to the modules that are required to parse out the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the data from the packets. 
Gotcha. But you're working on that, it sounds like. Yeah, that's it's one of multiple things being worked on <laughs> gotcha. right now, for sure. I hear you. And, and would this be a post-exploitation tool, or would it be something that you would do on an initial recon, let's say that you've got a foothold in the wireless network, or you were able to connect uh, a Dropbox into a uh, network jack? Basically, yeah, that would be the idea. If you have a, any type of remote device in the network that you can connect to, like a Dropbox, or um, if you're even uh, on a Windows host uh, after getting uh, initial access into a network and you can capture packets and, uh, um, you know, XFIL PCAPs, then absolutely either or uh, would be a valid scenario. Sorry, Corey, continue. Oh, um, so uh, with that being said, um, I, uh, I do have a demo prepared. Sweet. Uh, of the tool. So um, <clears throat> now uh, I had to, th this, basically the, the data that you're seeing is sanitized, but it's it's from a, an actual PCAP real life in the wild packet capture. So um, it's one of the, several PCAPs that I use to develop the tool, but it discloses a lot of awesome information. So do you just want me to uh, share my, yeah, my screen? Sweet. Okay. Awesome. So you can see my screen just fine. That's correct. If you want to make the text uh, a little bigger. Yeah. Let me see here. Perfect. How's that? Perfect. Thank you. Sweet. All right. So basically, uh, it's going to load the PCAP into memory, um, and then it's going to go through uh, all of the supported protocols to look for data. There's some protocols that are being implemented that aren't finished as well, uh, like dynamic trunking protocol is definitely one of them. Um, but it'll just go through this PCAP now. Uh, DHCP, uh, V4 Bootstrap, Windows Browser, uh, uh, IPv6, Bootstrap, um, LDP, CDP. Oh, LDP is popping up twice. Uh, do you run into any resource constraints trying to do all this in memory? Um, so large PCAPs definitely are an issue, um, and I'm looking as to how I want to handle that. The best PK, depending on how busy the network is, my experience, five to 10 minutes, um, you know, of a, on a packet capture is is generally like the the best time frame um, and obviously adjust where you need to based on how busy the network is. So this is going to be a little difficult to see because the output is kind of messed up i didn't expect to have to maximize my screen here yeah no worries it's wrapping that's right we, we can still see it yeah so here we have um some host names uh all down here you have your host your ipv4 uh if there is an ipv6 address it'll be their mac address uh domain and also a server type which is coming out of uh windows um browser uh, datagram host announcements um so you have the server type which will disclose if it's a 
a DC, uh, a backup DC, a SQL server, a printer. Um, and then it will also parse out the Windows NT version uh, and evaluate that to determine, you know, what kind of uh, workstation or server Windows OS it would be. And if there is a host comment within uh, host announcements or local browser announcements, uh, those will be parsed out and added to the, the Windows OS fingerprint um, because generally you'll get Samba server fingerprints, for example, like this guy down here. Um, and that's all coming out of these packets that are going to broadcast addresses on a network that you, know, you don't have to do anything in order to obtain. You don't have to talk to anything to get this data. So that's pretty valuable uh, for me. You have a LDP and a CDP devices down here. Um, I do need to annotate in the output which protocol uh, these packets, this data is coming from still, but here you can get the uh, management ID and the power capabilities uh, via CDP. You have your platform, which discloses a full Meraki uh, model, um, port IDs and VLAN um, IDs as well. Uh, here you can uh, also potentially get usernames from uh, SMB uh, direct. It would be uh, like old SMB uh, uh, net logon, like the old uh, logon protocol, which broadcasts the same way that Windows browser does. And um, within those direct uh, group broadcasts, uh, usernames are disclosed uh, as well as uh, Unicode uh, host names. Um, and then that host name will will uh, be searched for within the currently uh, collected data to determine if there's a domain for that host and if that host is even in there. And if it is, then we can also disclose a domain for it and, uh, and build out an AD username. Uh, down, down here in this uh, area, the fingerprints are disclosed. I'm just in a list currently right now. I still haven't figured out how I want to disclose the, the fingerprints. The domains are uh, done the same way. Um, but yeah, you're able to basically see if a host is, uh, you know, a server 2003 or XP host, um, really just potentially, you know, being able to take this data and maybe correlate it with other data that I haven't thought about using yet. You know, we can, uh, have more certainty in fingerprinting. Corey, the, oh. uh, the fingerprints, is that a P0F kind of module or using the other uh, discovery protocol data to determine the OS? It's, it's Windows browser uh, datagrams that are basically disclosing um, their Windows NT version. And these Windows NT versions correspond to Windows operating system uh, versions uh, for servers and for regular workstation, you know, end user OS versions. Do you have any trouble misidentifying? So the only time that uh, I miss this so far that um, I, I know I've misidentified hosts uh, was with um, something uh, my friend, uh, uh, Will Genovese pointed out to me that, um, even though I was pulling these NT version numbers to evaluate the Windows OS versions, um, I was 
getting false positives for a Ubuntu um, server or just even a workstation that was running Samba. Um, and that Samba server discloses Windows NT version numbers. So I was, you know, had a Ubuntu host that I thought was running Windows. And so once I started disclosing host comment data within those uh, OS fingerprints, I started seeing, you know, uh, a host name, you know, name like Ubuntu, and then uh, a Windows OS version uh, followed by Samba Ubuntu or Ubuntu Samba server, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and so uh, as I refine the tool, I'll obviously be taking this data and correlating it in such a way that we can determine, you know, what the OS actually is. But in the meantime, um, I will say that if you do see something like that and it's, it's showing up as Linux or there's a, a Linux fingerprint uh, in there somewhere, then it, it's probably Linux. Corey, how, how long do you have to sniff the network to discover most of the things? Is there? <clears throat> I know some of these protocols are really chatty, but in your kind of testing, like what's the amount of time you think uh, is most optimal? It really depends on real uh, if these protocols are there, um, which is kind of another thing that I always try to 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 um, you know make clear is that none of this data, like the data that you're seeing in this demo, is guaranteed. Um, it's basically looking in these PCAPs to, or, uh, or eventually, you know, uh, packets on a live uh, network interface to determine, you know, if it's there, then what, let's look for, you know, what we can find with that. So if we're seeing LDP traffic, like we know we can find X, Y, and Z uh, within those packets potentially. So let's go look th through them. But if you're on a network and you're capturing traffic passively, you know, and none of these protocols are in use, um, then you could end up not getting anything at all. Um, and so that's kind of why I always say, you know, this isn't a, a, a substitute for active tools, but it's definitely a viable option uh, that's worth looking at before you do have to resort to active measures to obtain this data. Corey, have you considered adding uh, Apple's Bonjour protocol? Is that still used uh, by Apple? Secondary question. I I haven't. Um, I've I've been uh, mm -hmm. trying to add protocols and refine them um, <laughs> as often as possible between like uh, regular work and uh, just personal life. Yeah. life. You know, basically <laughs> everything else. So uh, being the only developer on this is time-consuming, but... Yeah, uh, what you, Paul, what you're referring to is multicast DNS. Yep. Uh, that's what Bonjour uses. So the advantage of multicast DNS is that you may probably not be able to fingerprint the host, but at the very least, you're going to be able to get, hey, this host exists, it has this service available, and this service is available at this port. So multicast DNS is almost like SRV records, uh, but the thing is that you're broadcasting those out to everybody. So when I did the blog uh, last summer and uh, before Packet Recon, uh, the tool is called Net Recon, um, and that that uh, th the first rendition of this basically did have MDNS, and I think I took it out and I haven't implemented it back in yet because I was rewriting it. Mm. Um, but MDNS, MDNS is definitely 
um, something worth looking at. And there's some other protocols or actually protocols that I'm looking at now um, that I still need to implement for IPv6. So, nice. um, but that, yeah, de- getting MDNS back in this tool is definitely going to be uh, valuable and worthwhile. Cool. Any other questions for Corey? Yeah. Um, so, what what protocols are next on your list of what you'd like to add? Ignoring your fact that you're a single single person working on it. Um, besides MDNS, uh, I would like to finish dynamic trunking protocol. Um, I would like to um, look at basically anything else that I could pull out of Windows browser datagrams. I can actually disclose any server type uh, that basically is available uh, in the output of the tool. I just haven't figured out how I want to go about it because the output um, for it is going to be, you know, potentially difficult. If you're getting these server types uh, from these browser packets, you know, you could have one host that's identifying itself as a workstation server printer um, backup DC, like, uh, uh, so many different things that, uh, um, kind of taking that data and painting the picture, you know, um, and tailoring that towards attackers is, is really like the ultimate goal. But, um, in terms of protocols, um, for now, just, just probably MDNS and, uh, um, sorry. There's probably well, there's probably a, a series of um, routing indoor network <coughs> protocols mm-hmm. that are pretty chatty historically. Joffrey Carlos would probably be SSDP would be another one too as well. Yes, um, you, you might and yeah, I know there's there's a ton more protocols out there that are and uh, uh, that are super loud that I'm probably not even looking at yet. But um, yeah, Joff, did you have? comment on the yeah, network I, protocols? Yeah, I did. Um, multicast uh, OSPF. Yep. Uh, if it's advertising on a link, we'll give you actually route advertisements that will let you learn the entire topology of the network. Wow. Advertisements. Um, advertisements. He sounds advertisements. so sophisticated when you say that, John. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, oh, yes, baby. Would those um, advertisements be made of aluminum? <laughs> aluminum. That's right. <laughs> how, can I, how can I win with this audience? I mean, these guys... I mean, shit. Um, so, yeah, decoding OSPF link state advertisements is uh, advertisements. Is, um, uh, yeah, all you have to do is high, lose highly, the accent. Come on. Highly desirable. Um, and you may want to look at that. Um, I've actually written a similar tool to you. Um, I just haven't picked it up in, in some time. But network broadcast and multicast is certainly a wealth of information. Dynamic linking protocol, I would agree with you. Um uh, uh, EIGRP uh, in the Cisco yeah. only world yep. for route protocol uh, is also a very good one to learn information from. Uh, if you're running interior BGP, that might be a good one too, but um, more more so the link state uh, advertisement protocols because those things will multicast. What about like, like RIP V1? Uh, RIP V1, yeah, that would go into it, but um, yeah, I like to think not many people are running that. I like uh, to H- think that too, but you know what? If we had the capability yeah. to find out... <laughs> Yeah, um, HSRP and mm-hmm. GRRP, VRRP. Mm-hmm. Um, the the um, those are all uh, broadcast. Those send all send traffic to the broadcast. Joff, that's my question. Yeah, for they you. do. They're, yes. they're multicast. They're multicast. Yeah, multicast. So anything right. that sends 
Anything that sends stuff to multicast, multicast for adverti yeah. advertising first hop redundancy protocols uh, yeah. is kind of useful because then you Joff, can look at it. It sounds like you should get with Corey and you should just start contributing to Corey's to Corey, as long as you're okay with folks contributing to your project, I nominate Joff to be the first external contributor. More than happy to have help. Um, <laughs> there you go, I, uh, Jeff. Eventually, I like I've got anything else to do. Um, so. Yeah, Corey, maybe we should talk offline a little bit. I've got, uh, um, I've actually got some command, uh, some command like help uh, for Python. If you can write it in the command shell, the command loop uh, in Python, you can uh, spawn off sniffer threads as as uh, ways to collect information without actually having it just run interactively right there in the. Uh, in in the shell and just populate the database and and like have it show up real-time information so i might be able to help you out with that that'd be awesome i think this this project has a whole lot of merit it's again a tool that i've i've wanted for some time now it exists and uh you know if folks want to help uh cory in addition to joff i would uh encourage that and i, I think this is a, a fantastic effort and i'm uh, anxious to see where where it goes from here I, I am too. I think it's really, really good. It's sort of LAN reconnaissance is basically yes. what you're looking at. I don't know what you end up naming it, but LAN reconnaissance is extremely useful because like like you have noted, uh, uh, Corey, the, the so many protocols are so chatty, multicast and broadcast. Definitely. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. It means a lot. Awesome. No worries. Uh, and folks can find this uh, open source on GitHub. There is a link in the show notes, wiki.securityweekly.com. It's episode 589. Corey, thank you so much for appearing thank on Paul Security Weekly. Thank you. Thank you. Without taking a short break, come back. The security news even for this week. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Endgame's Converge Endpoint Security Platform is transforming security programs, their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Domain tools help security analysts turn threat data into threat intelligence. They take indicators from your network, including domains and IP addresses, and connect them with nearly every active domain on the internet. Those connections drive risk assessments, help profile attackers, guide online fraud investigations, and map cyber activity to attacker infrastructure. Fortune 1000 companies, global government agencies, and leading security solutions vendors use the domain tools platform as a critical ingredient in their threat investigations and proactive defenses. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash domain tools. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. A couple of uh, quick announcements from our sponsors. Visit recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly. That's right. They've got the daily. That's right. Daily threat insights delivered wow. to your inbox. Uh, it's really good. The feedback has been really good so far. Nice. Uh, like I said, if you're a SOC analyst or security analyst looking at for indicators to compromise every day, probably something you should subscribe to. Nothing like dailies in your inbox. That's right. Um, active countermeasures, securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. That's right, the Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, something that uh, John Strand, uh, myself, and others uh, participated in, uh, helped with the development. Chris Brenton is now uh, leading the operations for that. Really awesome 
uh, product, of course. Well, I'm kind of biased when I say that because I'm from the company. <laughs> but anyway, you should check it out, securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Chris will be back this year amongst others uh, giving uh, interviews and technical segments on it. So you want to make sure that you check that out. Hell yeah. It's All good right. stuff. It's good stuff. That's right. It Joff is. helped us too. I mean, you know. I did. Come on, Paul. You didn't even give me credit. What I did. I did at the end. There, I was. I was keeping yeah, you on edge I, there for a minute, Joff. You know. Right on the edge. Right on the edge. Right on the edge. So, uh, where do you want to start? I ask this all the time. Where do we want to start? And do we have a good answer to that? Usually, no. No. Usually, usually not. No. Okay. So, hey, Jason Wood's here with us. Hey, Jason Wood. How are you? Jason hey. Wood. It's good to be back. Good to have you, my friend. We're going to start off, Jason, thank you for choosing. We're going to start off with my story number one, which is why Hyatt (laughs) is launching a public bug bounty program. Now, they had a small bug bounty program before. Now, they've got a public one through HackerOne. They also state in the article that the Hyatt bug bounty program prohibits the use of social engineering tactics. So, So, social engineering could include the use of phishing emails to trick a user on clicking on something as well as fraudulent voice phone calls the program also does not include point of sale terminals at the hotel Uh, that's fair okay i mean as far as bug bounty programs go i mean to answer the question for bug bounty that's i I would argue that's pretty standard standard right yeah Yeah. probably and but so they're launching this question because they got hacked obviously yes jeff well well I am not familiar with Hyatt. Do they do they write their own stuff, or are they relying mostly on third party, uh, you know, applications and systems and whatnot? And can you launch a bug bounty program if you're the you know end user consumer and not the owner yeah. of a product? You can. I mean, several bounties, from what I understand, are paid out because you did find a, a legitimate vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've seen that in the past. I don't know how common. It is today. One could assume, Jeff, in where I fall on that issue, is that if it is your own software, and it's a great question, Jeff, that you should have a good SDLC and process for making sure that no known vulnerabilities are in your software. However, that's increasingly more difficult today as I, I think John Strand was kind of half-joking, maybe even not, that some companies just take a bunch of software from other places and open source and whatnot and cobble it together and hey look i've got a startup right yep. so a hundred percent of your code is your your a product that you're offering that other people could buy but it's largely based on other open source components of course that depends on the license and right and such yep. but um yeah and, but, and, what, what, but go ahead Jeff. you know but but more to the point in jeff's mind how does this relate to pci <laughs> Well, the point of sale systems are out of scope for the bug bounty. I don't know how that, if how or if that. Well, it says point of point of sale terminals at the hotel. That's not the only point of sale that they might have. Right. Um, But yeah. And arguably, the point is in if you think about the bug bounty, they want it. It's supposed to be accessible by everyone. Everyone. And social engineering, that's not the necessarily accessible by everyone. Sure. There's some craft that goes into that. And also, I'd argue those uh, payment terminals are, quote, behind the desk, and you're doing, you're violating some privacy and trespassing and those types of things, physical trespass to get access to those. So I can see why those are potentially 
off limits. Those are probably better served I guess for a it, penetration test where you're working with an organization. I, I would agree. You, you ever had, Larry? Have you ever had the experience when you're checking out of a hotel and you, you've just taught a week at Sands, and the uh, and the <laughs> hotel employee—I can't even say this without laughing—the hotel employee says. My computers are so slow. I don't understand why. Oh, that happens not just on hotel. That happens everywhere. Yeah. So, yes, my computers are so slow. That happens everywhere. And my everywhere. answer is I completely understand. Right? Is, I do technology for a living. And I leave it at that. Totally get it. But the yeah, big one I, is, I, wait, yeah. you check out of hotels? Oh, wait. Yeah, uh, don't yes. you do that I, just, I just leave. Today's checkout day, I just leave. About Some hotels do varying levels of enforcement on that, I think. They like you to check out, but it's, largely it's I just, do the same thing, Larry. Yeah. Yeah. What are they going to do? Throw me out? Right. <laughs> Various levels of enforcement. What are they going to do? Throw me out? Most of the time, they just have you leave your key in your room and... Leave your key in the room? I have a box for those. Well, <laughs> that's what the sign True. says, whether or not you, you actually... You guys are to you're totally right, okay? Sometimes I like to have the printed receipt. I'm weird and old-fashioned that way. Okay, so. yeah, there there are those times, and, and they've largely stopped stuffing the you receipt under your door. strike the fashioned from that sentence, Joff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. 42, yeah, meaning what of the, life, the universe, what and the everything. What does the clerk do these days when they don't run around and stuff the receipts under the door? Right, yeah. How does this relate back to Hyatt's bug bounty program? I yeah, don't I think know. We digressed. I think we digressed. It was uh, all my We digressed, but uh, uh, you know, Hyatt is a hotel. They're a, you know, they're not a a technology company. Aren't most bug bounty programs put out by technology companies? It still just no, sounds kind of weird to me. I wouldn't say that. I uh, I just hope uh, Give another hard. example of a company that's not a, a you know developer software IT company that has a bug bounty. There may be them out there. I'm just not familiar with it. Watch your screen. Watch my screen? Why? Oh, yeah, it's moving my mouse. Yes, <laughs> it is. But I, I think that, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what happened at, at Hyatt, right? And I don't, so therefore I can't really comment as to whether a bug bounty in my opinion is appropriate for them or not. I mean, they did have a breach, but does that mean that their security program was weaker than everyone else's? I, I think it's purely speculative of us to say well, that, it, right? If anyone has a breach, I mean, everyone's breach, whether you know it or not, at some point. Don't we speculate, right? don't we speculate during the news segment just yes. about every week? Yes. <laughs> I mean, isn't that so, kind of what the segment's about? The feeling that I get, and this, it's nothing more, is that Hyatt, from everything I've read, right, um, Marriott wouldn't connect Hyatt in into their network now that they've had a breach and the information I've read about the breach to me they're not the highest on the maturity scale in my assessment from everything I've read publicly they've got some work to do I don't necessarily believe that if they had a public bug bounty that doing a public one is going to significantly increase their security maturity level it sounds to me like the other things they should be doing about creating processes, understanding the assets that they have, and a lot of things we've talked about on recent shows would be better suited to raise their maturity level uh, and then maybe over time a bug bounty. Sometimes I, one of the use cases, and I'm, I don't know if I'm doing this, right? But one of the use cases for bug bounty is we just had a lawsuit from the Federal Trade Commission or we just had a breach and therefore we're going to announce that we have a bug bounty program because public relations says that that's good 
for making people feel good about maybe coming and staying in our hotels that their data and uh, personal information credit cards are secure. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it almost sounds like they don't. They are they're acknowledging that they don't have the resources to begin to do the maturing exercises that sure. you're referring to. So yep. they're just kind of throwing it out for help. True. Enough All speculation right. on that. Pure. <laughs> that was a very speculative story. Um, next, so, next, next story. So consumers demand security from smart device makers. Now, here's one where. I still just don't believe it. Even though it comes from Microsoft and the folks that I've been speaking with Microsoft have been outstanding. Um, Galen Hunt is one of my most favorite people, I think, that we've interviewed maybe ever and also one of my most favorite people at Microsoft who is behind Azure Sphere. High degree of confidence there. They tasked um, it, it, a partner basically to go survey 3,000 people in the US, um, UK and Germany, something like that. And so 3,000 people is a lot to have some sense, uh, you know, and confidence in your numbers. So when they polled the people, they asked them, what factors play into your shopping decisions? I'm assuming when it comes to technology, 21% uh, um, said security. 20% said value for the money. I just, I, again, my feeling is that that, I, I don't believe that that's true. Um, I, I don't know. And then ease of use, a trusted brand, and ease of setup uh, were, were after that. Um, also, 90% of the consumers think any piece of smart technology can be hacked, mm. which I think is accurate. I'll, yep. I'll, I'll buy that. But I don't buy that. Basically, what they're saying is that security and value for the money are equal factors. I think maybe it's the first thing people think of because it's in their house and they get a little spooked by that aspect of it, but I'm not sure how much they take it into account to actually decide to buy something, particularly versus the price. Yeah. I, I And, you know, this could be selection bias, although 3,000 people across three countries is is a lot, but it also depends on who they targeted in those countries. Also, yep. I think, is it like question bias? Like how they ask the question that could potentially lead people down uh, answering it in a specific way, or I am I completely wrong? And consumers actually do care about security today. Are they creeped out by the Amazon devices? Have they <clears throat> seen enough in the regular mainstream news to go, yeah, you know what? I actually do take security into consideration. And if they did, what what would be their research that they would do to validate that? I don't know. It's a great question. What are the how, how do the consumers validate whether it's secure or not? That's what leads me to believe that there was some selection in her question so, bias, selection in bias the, yeah, I think to, they were. to do that. Now, I don't disagree with the motive. I think pushing people to uh, Azure Sphere and there was uh, BlackBerry uh, also had an announcement about a secure IoT uh, infrastructure and framework. And Bla BlackBerry is in the fully owned subsidiary of RIM? Um, no, nope, BlackBerry. BlackBerry is I'm reading the it as Black, the company that is is BlackBerry. So not the phone device. The yes, correct. Okay, good because I didn't want to have to like smack you. No, 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 no. <laughs> no but we talked about this at Enterprise Security. Yeah. BlackBerry is very much making a play into security and has for some time apparently, and we're just catching wind of this. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions 
uh, about it. But the most recent thing is that there sounded like they were in the press release that I read. So say I based it on that, right? Said that they were, because they bought Silence too. Yeah. And it was unclear whether it was some of Silence's technology as well. Um, but it was similar to Azure Sphere in my assessment. And so, but I like, the, my point is, thank you for derailing me, Larry, that my point is that I like these efforts, right? And if we have to use some survey data to help raise awareness and get, it's not just a consumer thing. You have to get the people who are making these IoT devices and the infrastructure that surrounds them as Larry is presented yes. on, right? It's not just the device, it's the firmware, it's the cloud, it's the mobile app, it's all the, and the things that tie those pieces together. <coughs> if we can create a more secure environment for people to do that, we're going to drive people who are creating those products to use and adopt those, those frameworks and then consumers to, and as this, I said with the survey, to take that into account in their evaluation and how do you arm the consumers with something that says this device is secure because it passed some compliance framework like PCI and <laughs> now therefore that's more secure. I don't know. I think I'm rambling. Am I rambling? Yes. Whatever. Uh, okay. Uh, hey, Paul, you're rambling, but you, you did say all the key <laughs> words. I think you said cloud, IoT. PCI. Uh, I believe you said PCI, PCI in there somewhere. He did, yes, for sure. Um, he did. Yeah, I used all the big words like infrastructure and framework and I, firmware. Infrastructure, <laughs> cloud, cloud, audit, security. I, I bingo. Like bingo. Joff is oh. like playing the announcer to my <laughs> delivery of content on the show. It's great. It's Joff Don Parter. <laughs> I, I, I like to help. I like to help when I can. Any insights on this on this topic, Joff, maybe? Perhaps. I don't know. I didn't. I, I kind of all just sort of went right by me. I, I, He's like, I don't, I don't know. know. I was playing uh, buzzword bingo when we you were talking. talking. Yeah. I just heard all the buzzwords. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I got nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, then, moving right along. <laughs> Larry, do you have stories? Uh, I do. I do. I, one of the ones that I thought was really interesting uh, came up at uh, at work this week. Just And it was one of those off sort of random type of things. Um uh, uh, City of DC is uh, looking to do some updates to the Metro. Uh, they are having co various companies bid on uh, new Metro cars, the cars DC yep. the, okay. the subway, uh, and a Chinese company has bid hmm. to build Metro cars in DC. In DC, hmm. think that about that. Surprise. That doesn't think surprise. about that. Just, but but now think about hmm. the capabilities. And what things get talked about on the metro that probably shouldn't that yep. a Chinese company might like to be able to monitor on? Who nobody uses, talks on the DC metro? You're well, crazy. I, and and not just everyone talk. just wears headphones. Come on, Larry. and not just talk. What Phone devices calls. do they yeah, use? That's probably yep. more likely. Yep. Wi-Fi MAC addresses, even though they may be randomized, more randomized now. IMEI numbers mm. for well. Yeah. Uh, how about how about get a camera on there and start capturing screen information because not everybody uses a privacy screen. A camera camera for screen information, mm -hmm. even if they're not recording audio, uh, you could use that to you know do really bad like lip sync of metric movies. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, facial Some of the Chinese facial recognition is uh, amongst the best on the planet. How do you know there aren't already cameras on the metro? Yeah, but you know, I look at I look at from the built, other perspective. Yeah, but, but then again, who? Yeah, there there might have been some yeah, infiltration going on there. How do you know? Good good point. But now that it's 
heck of a lot more potentially blatant. Mm. That, that, I, I just say then get up and compete, America, right? Have somebody else bid on it that does a, a, a good job and can actually get the job done. Right. I mean, your your concerns are all completely valid. Right? Sure. The security issues are real. Absolutely. The other bids and- came from North Korea, Russia, and Iran, ironically <laughs> enough. Right? What's wrong with that? I mean, thank you, Paul. Uh, thank, you. thank you very much. Yeah. Lee, did you have a comment? I thought I heard you chime in there. Oh, I was just, I said the same thing you did. You were, you were talking about what could we capture with a video because not everybody uses uh, privacy screens or other um, discretionary tactics when working on the Metro. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It- now and now the discussion is for some of these types of things, uh, yeah, specific, specifically in this space of, while we can't restrict who bids, what country they're from, and what manufacturers they represent, mm-hmm. should we take that into, into a consideration, consideration as right. far to, as far as weighing their bid, and not just cost? Because it would be purely as experts in speculation. Yes. It would be speculative on their part to assume <laughs> that if the bid was to be won by a Chinese manufacturer, that they would, in fact, do something nefarious or mm-hmm. malicious. And, and well, you know, knowing how that, that bidding system works, that typically it's the lowest, the lowest bidder, bidder, they may way undercut their cost sure. to have that advantage of being able sure. to perform those implants. Right. This, this is true. I mean, it, it does beg the question of what sort of oversight uh, mm. would be employed uh, in executing such a contract right. um, to, to, you know, to, to, to ensure that... that well, and that could very well offset the costs, right? right. Joff brings up a great point. If, yeah. say, China does win, right, the, they're going to be paranoid because it's China, yep. and they may have to spend more money potentially monitoring and or validating what's, what's being <coughs> right. implemented. Right. And, and then you're, you're, you're speculating again that they would be paranoid, just yeah. saying. That's true. That is pure speculation. Yep. Well, I, I think part of the reason why this came up is because that folks are paranoid and and those types of things. That so is also speculation, Larry. Yeah. You don't know for sure that I they don't. are. I don't. The other speculation is maybe we should consider talking about supply chain attacks. Yes. So we don't even need to, talk to, uh, need to attack the supply chain because the supply right. chain is the attack. Well, the like, other thing to that, Larry, is no matter who wins the bid, what's the likelihood that some of the parts and or electronics are made in China? Again, pure speculation. Right. And knowing that they may end up in the DC metro. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I I think my biggest worry in all of this is that we are attributing that China is going to do something bad, period. Mm. And I think the same can be said about the U.S., the same can be Mm. said about the U.K., the same can be about uh, other companies, Uh, for example. um, Due to the Snowden leak, sadly, we were caught red-handed modifying Cisco gear and transit being sent to other places because we were able to get to the chipping. Um, right. It came out that AT&T, Verizon, and others actually went to the NSA and were like, hey, how can we help you guys get better uh, data from our users? Uh, so I, I think the same thing we're saying about China can be said about us. Sure. And I think when we start seeing companies go like, no, we're not going to let this company bid for this project, we start getting into a slippery slope where the same rule can be applied to us when we try to bid in other places. Agreed. True. I think that's a, that's a valid observation. And you also got to look at the, the operational technology that's been implemented. I think I tweeted just this week, for Christ's sake, you know, that, that you know, 
China's got a real deal happening in, tra- in trains. They got a train that goes from Shanghai to Beijing in four hours at 350 kilometers an hour. The U.S. has nothing like that. Um, and so, you know, that, that technological competitiveness in the bid might be a real deal, right? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't turn it down just purely because of information security concerns. But there should be oversight for sure. And any country should be entitled to oversight. Do you remember when they rebuilt the section of the Bay Bridge with the Chinese steel that turned out to be substandard and they had to do a whole lot of retrofitting to keep the thing from corroding and falling apart early? I don't remember that, but I find that fascinating. So my my point is just if we can do some assurance of the quality of materials return, that could help with the we're not picking on anybody. Everybody's got to hit the bar. Right. Well, one of the things that's interesting, too, about this article is it says that there is no U.S. company that makes subway cars. Right. So wherever these cars come from, they're coming from overseas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Overseas in Canada. And Canada. Well, Canada is overseas. <laughs> no, I said overseas right, in Canada, Jason. That was, right. oh, yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> at Jeff's expense. Well, you, you weren't expense. around earlier, Paul. <clears throat> I am going back to uh, Atlantic Security Conference this year, so I will be traveling Overseas, overseas to, to Canada. Canada again, again. Canada, Canada. We love, we love Canada. Though. We oh, do we love Canada. All right, let's get back to breaches. Reddit alerts users to a possible account breach. Do, do you, uh, you folks use Reddit? I do use Reddit, but I don't have a login. There you go. You're I just do it anonymously. A reader. You're just a, a do, lurker. I'm just a troll. Uh, yeah, just a, a troll. Well, you a troll. You would you troll. You need to log you in. You need yeah. to log in. Yeah. yeah, you just post to someone else's account. Wait a second. Never mind. Moving right along. Yes. Anyway. About Reddit. (laughs) uh, About Reddit. um, There is a a quote uh, from Jared from uh, Shape Security. It says, whenever there's a massive account takeover wave unrelated to a system compromise, it's likely due to credential stuffing. Just like happened to Dunkin' Donuts. We talked about this not that long. Correct. So likely not a problem with Reddit. However, if... And it's interesting about being a, a you know a, a citizen, an internet citizen, mm-hmm. right? If everyone should share in this responsibility that if you have account data, that if you lose it, that someone else might suffer. And I think it's interesting to consider legislation that might right. um, hold someone or an entity accountable for that. Uh, that was just kind of my takeaway. Uh, from this and reddit is a very interesting concept um i mean we don't often talk about their their security practices must be good we don't often mm-hmm. talk about you know a reddit right. breach right. why this one caught my attention <coughs> yep also their commitment to keeping it open and free um i mean it's a double-edged sword don't get me wrong people are going to use it for very yep. thing, uh, you know, things you that go think, against think, think many people's like, values think and, about like 4chan like and laws um, but they've pledged to be open. Whereas, if you look mm-hmm. at other larger social networks, in my opinion, they've gone the other way and become very restrictive. Our listeners have heard, uh, you know, me talk about, uh, for example, Stogie Geeks. <laughs> and if you have like something like a Facebook page and you want to promote a post, even though you're a cigar podcast, mm-hmm. you are associated with tobacco. Therefore, you are bad and you violate their standards. Yes, which is a shame. Not that Facebook needs yeah, any more. Bad. More shame. Publicity. Publicity. Mm-hmm. No, they, they, they do a good enough job on their own to get the bad publicity. That's just true. Thank you for saying that word I couldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> I'll <like> to help. 
Uh, enterprise iPhones will soon be able to use security dongles. Because you know you needed another dongle in your life, and, Larry. And my question is, why only enterprise iPhones? Uh, <coughs> that's a good question. Uh, I'm assuming that's not... Is it just more of a function of the, the title of the story than... Could be. Uh, I, I, I think it's because it's all future. YubiKey hasn't decided what they're actually going to deliver yet. Um, they're coming out with the device with a with a lightning interface, and in fact, their applications on the iPhone don't support that yet. Interesting. I, I did not know that. Um, also, it's a double-headed dongle in that it supports lightning <laughs> and USB-C. <laughs> what is so funny? It's a dongle. It's a double-headed dongle. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's, it's just a three-way joke. <laughs> Reminds me of Thanksgiving all over again. Uh, yeah, well, we sort of are a dysfunctional family. So. Now, now, Paul, what color do they uh, come in? Uh, that I am not sure. <laughs> not sure. Uh, iPhone users will, will hate this, is my estimation, that enterprises, first of all, don't want to manage mobile devices. And when they do, mm -hmm. it oftentimes fails. Um, yet here we are, and the article states that what's really important here isn't just the news that enterprises can now look to deploy hardware-based security around their mobile systems, but also that this development reflects how important Apple's products are becoming to the enterprise. And while no one really likes using dongles, they do enhance Apple's already industry-leading industry, industry -leading reputation for security, making it possible to deploy these devices in even more mission critical situations i would also disagree about apple's products becoming more of a staple in the enterprise maybe on the mobile phone side yeah i'll give them that on yeah. the mobile phone side maybe yeah. maybe I, I think more in enterprise as well carlos i you i remember this is like trip down memory lane episode uh you evaluating some of the <coughs> mobile device management solutions in mm -hmm. in your estimation today carlos is um you know, managed iPhones very much a part of enterprise uh, security architecture? I would say yes. In okay. fact, um, let me see if I can share this or not. Uh, let, let's just say that we're seeing more iPhones and uh, based on when we get into MDM solutions. Uh, MDM, MDM solutions, just like backup systems and Active Directory, mm -hmm. they're very big targets for us. So we typically go after those uh, during red team engagements. Uh, and I can say that based on, on the reports and all of the after action uh, meetings that we have, there's quite a large number of iPhones out there in the enterprise that are being managed by multiple MDM solutions. Mm. Uh, now, uh, that may be the case, right? I, and I take Carl. I, I agree with Carlos and take his word for it. However, I think what we might be able to all agree upon is how Apple iPhone users will really hate using the dongle. I think it's going to depend on why. I don't. I would. I would suck if I had to use it to unlock my my iPhone. I, I would right. be less than thrilled. But. If that means I can now access applications that are require that that type of authentication that I couldn't get to from my iPhone mm -hmm. before, bring it because now I can use them. Yep. Or your is, or or maybe even your iPad. I, I you know I've heard multiple stories where go. folks, significant others, um, 
don't even use their computer anymore. They use they do all their things from right. their iPhone or their iPad. And yeah. quite honestly, I've I've done that not that long ago. Like just sitting on the sofa at the uh, at the end of the night, and I want to unwind. I go get my laptop out of my office and put it on my lap. But no, I just sit there with my phone. Sure. And that gets me everything that I want to do. You know, to be to relax. You can look at memes, porn, equally as well on your phone as you can on your iPad I, I, or your laptop. Exactly. That's important. It's a beautiful thing. I still think you you say that, Lee, though, but you haven't maybe run into the situation where <coughs> you want to access something and your tokens on a in a different room, on a different floor, oh, in that, a different yeah. bag, at home, and you're at work or at home and you're in another country. So, yeah, so there's actually I have run into that situation, which is why I have from my access with my badge as well as a YubiKey, which is equivalent, because I can throw the U I can leave the YubiKey in the machine and I won't forget it. Whereas the badge, you're right. Am I going to have that with me? Um, on the other hand, I worked with a program the other day. There were these very specific databases they have to use. They could only authenticate to it with their HSPD12 badge. We found a reader for the iPhone. They're incredibly happy because they can use this stuff now. Personally, I think it blows. I, I, I don't particularly like it, but happy users, that's worth a fortune. Yeah, we have that to be sense. careful, though, that, that we're not saying that to make it usable means you need to have your second factor no, 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 plugged into your laptop at all times. Right. Because from a physical security standpoint, that kind of defeats the purpose. You mean that makes it a single factor authenticator? No. You know, in the YubiKeys example, if you have fingers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's so cute and compact. Right I mean, you can just leave that sucker in there. You never see it. Yeah. That's true. Uh, also, you have to consider right now a lot of uh, a lot of places actually don't have access to the data from their mobile devices. Mm. So just by the sheer fact that they're going to be able to use a dongle, it will mean that they're going to be able to then have access to that data, have access to those systems that before probably they couldn't get access to. Yeah, and it does it, it does present an interesting scenario where in a laptop you could conceivably leave it plugged in and would take up a USB port in some capacity. Mm -hmm. On an iPhone, though, it, there's only one lightning port. <laughs> and I'm assuming it probably doesn't have a charging pass-through on it, so yep. you're going to have to remove the dongle in order to charge your phone, therefore leaving it in at all times and then losing it for you know someone to pick up and go, oh, I, can, you know, I guess if I had their password, then I already have their second That backup. would need a lightning hub for our phone. Yes, to be attached at all times. Mm. Yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, they do have then the USB-C on Android. I do have the USB-C mm -hmm. version of the YubiKey, and you could conceivably put make a hub, but that's not very practical to keep with you at all times. And, the new and, iPad and, Pro and, and again, from your phone, question. how many times do you log into multiple systems to access data from your phone. Um, at least some of the systems that I see protected, which are CRM and other stuff, it's kind of hard just to go through that screen on a mobile device on the phone itself. So, do, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I see it kind of like a niche kind of thing. Yeah, I agree, Carlos. Um, <clears throat> so, Larry, uh, at Heathrow... Uh, London Heathrow Airport. Flights yeah. were disrupted and all planes were grounded, uh, according to this article, because of a drone. 
a rumored, rumored drone. drone. Same thing with Gatwick. They could never actually prove that there was a drone present. Interesting. That is my understanding. Uh, it doesn't take just that to disrupt flights at Heathrow. I mean, well, shit. I mean, a moth could fart at Heathrow. <laughs> <and you could. laughs> I did it once with the paper airplane. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, th- this is this is actually becoming uh, a, a thing that is surprising, and uh, I suspect we will see more of this type of threat with actual drones that can be proven, and we'll get folks caught. Um, the question becomes, what kind of defenses can we start putting around something like this? Yeah, Jason, I, it's like our prison story. <laughs> that sounded really bad. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> Tell me more. This is relevant to my interests. Well, Paul and I had talked about this on Pack Naked News a while back. Where yeah. oh, We didn't I, actually I, go to prison together. It's, we did not clarify for no, the record. It was a t- wasn't together or separately. Prison story. Jason and I have never been to prison together or independent. As far as I know, Jason, I don't know about you, but I have not. Well, I visited somebody visited, in prison, sure. so I, I guess I've been there. Mm. I went to Alcatraz once. Yep. Sorry. On Continue, Jason. Yes. Well, just uh, so Paul and I talked. You and I had talked about this on Hack Naked News. Where was it? Max Vision, the guy who yeah. uh, got busted for TJ Maxx and some other stuff set up to do a, a drone s- smuggling ring to drop contraband off into the prison. And um, they got busted because somebody ratted them out. But, mm. you know, we were talking about, well, it's illegal to fly these things around prisons and stuff like that. But if you're smuggling into prison, do you really care? So, yeah, I mean, how do you defend against something about this? Well, and, the, and the, it's the other. It's not Heathrow. There's yeah. not great defenses. The other thing about Max Vision too wasn't he also caught with like a uh, a credit card kind of scam that he was padding he people's was, accounts for the dispensary in the prison. That's how he was getting by in prison. I mean, yeah. I, in, I, in one sense, like you're not faulting <laughs> him for trying to, and like you got computer skills. You're like, hey, I can pad your account. Like, yeah, okay. And I, and I thought it, I didn't think it was Max Vision that got nailed for the TJX. No, I, I don't think it else. was TJX. Max Vision was the the lion worm. I thought. Yeah, I thought yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. Oh, was one of the things that you have to remember with drones is that you can actually, um, si- since I fl- ha- built my own drones and I've, I've, I have been flying them, uh, you have two different types of control planes uh, when we're talking about drones. One is where you have your radio and you're controlling it. That is a channel that you can actually jam or uh, affect. The other one's GPS. If the drone is on an automated mode and is flying via GPS, but so far, everything that I've seen is that people either simply just with a jaggy antenna with a very focused beam just go after those channels and obstruct the drone's uh, operation. The drone just goes a bit crazy and crashes. And the other ones that they simply uh, fire a net or fire a shotgun uh, shell into the drone and destroy it uh, are the kind of scenarios that I've seen so far when dealing with drones. Uh, a good example of how can they be weaponized in Iraq and Syria for a very long time? People have been strapping uh, mortar rounds into those small mortar rounds and also grenades and simply dropping them on targets. And mm-hmm. we saw it in the uh, attempt to kill the Venezuelan president. I was going to say, it was oh, in Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember that story. Yep. Yeah, And now we have the one in Yemen 
uh, where the Houthi rebels actually used it very effectively. The drone simply flew over the parade, uh, and this this happened today, and it actually exploded, and shrapnel was sent very uh, effectively against the guy that was presenting in the parade and everybody around him and actually killed him and injured several other people. Wow. I didn't know. Did that happen today, Carlos? Yes. Yeah. Yikes. <clears throat> oh, wow. Shit. Um, we did uh, um, an interview over a year ago, I believe, with a company called Spotter RF that uh, they... Logan Harris, they used, uh, are they using RF technology, Larry, to detect incoming physical threats that could be people, cars, mm-hmm. or drones, and they were able to tell the difference based on the RF pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think it's somewhat similar to sonograms, sound waves, but using radio waves, and they could tell the difference between a bird and a drone because of its behavior was different. Episode 68 of Enterprise Johnny Security Weekly. Johnny on the spot. Johnny on the spot. Thank you, Johnny Blaze. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, in every time we cover these stories of airports or prisons uh, having to defend against drones, I think that, and I wish them the best because hopefully they've got, they've got some more business, which, and, and if they can legitimately help organizations protect against this threat, it's, it's a good thing. So keeping the world safer. Um, the Promise in Peril or 5G. Um, I don't think we're going to see the security issues really bubble up and get a lot of attention until 5G comes like way down in price. I can't imagine that 5G is going to hit the market and be inexpensive. I think it's going to be similar to Wi-Fi and other things where it's going to be limited by cost and it's going to be limited by adoption by the, the various carriers. Yep. Um, and, and the uh, capabilities and capacity of the providers to to handle all of that data, it's, it's going to be a slow growth. I do think we will see the day where devices aren't necessarily going to require Wi-Fi. But I think that's a long way away to think about how the economics have to work out to come to that point. You folks agree? Disagree? Uh, so yeah, also, you have to go think ahead, about compatibility. Uh, right now, it's a standard, but people are going to be building a bunch of, piece of ge- pieces of gear, and we don't know how they're going to behave mm. one with the other. Uh, I know that uh, AT&T, in the co-working area that I worked, they were doing some 5G experiments, and one of the things that we actually saw is that you really do have to saturate the area with a bunch of antennas just to get the coverage that probably with GSM uh and 4G, you actually need it only one. Mm. So uh, adoption is on, only going to be kind of like in metropolitan areas where you can actually put enough antennas and uh, access points in that area to cover it. So also battery life. People have been saying mm-hmm. like, hey, Motorola has the first 5G phone, but when you look at, at it, it's a brick. And almost everything's actually battery to be able to run that new radio. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, jumping on what Carlos said earlier this week, I was reading an article where they were talking about the range of the 5G access points is something like 200 meters, and they were talking about deploying them in underneath using manhole covers as a, as a, as a surface for them under underneath and relying on the fiber, which means metropolitan area. You get out in the out in the sticks, you're not going to be able to do that many 
coverage. It, it's crazy. Yeah, you're not going to get the density. Yeah. Well, it's good. We don't have to worry about that for a while. Um, so, (laughs) next story. (laughs) I I think we're going to see some pretty, pretty quick adoption of 5G. Um, just because I've heard that some of the telcos uh, and some of the cellular providers are already Mm -hmm. starting to do some test deployments. Yeah, but I think it's going to be slow, though. Everything I read and have heard tonight. No, you think? Does it? Uh, it's kind of an arms race, right? Yeah, it's an arms race. It, it, it's, so it's the first to support it, and then it's whoever can make money off of it, yep. right? That's their motivation. They're not doing it for the the greater good. They're doing it to make money, right? Right, and by delivering higher bandwidth makes money. Yeah, yeah. A- and then it comes down to the investment versus how much money they're going to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, t- I don't know if it's higher bandwidth or the ability to you know bring on that many more users and, and nobody notices any bandwidth issues right which i guess is technically bandwidth but you know they more users more customers more money if we were going to speculate i would simply ask if anyone believes that the technology in and of itself is going to introduce new uh, types of vulnerabilities or is it simply the vulnerabilities we already know about uh, are just going to be that much more promiscuous because there's so many more Uh, devices to one, my understanding is that the crypto and 5G has already been broken. Mm. There you go. There you so go. there's the answer to your question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Party on, Wayne. According to one, Party on, one source, web vulnerabilities are up and IoT flaws are down. Now, I, I wasn't able to read the full article because dark reading tells me I've hit my limit on articles, which is too bad because this kind of sounds like it was a sponsored post. In any case, um, <laughs> there's a web security vendor that is saying that there are more web vulnerabilities than IoT vulnerabilities. Maybe we could find an IoT security vendor that says there's more IoT vulnerabilities yeah. than web security vulnerabilities. What if it's a web security vulnerability in, in an, an IoT, IoT product, product? Does which, it is, count which is count like double dipping? Double. So the number of flaws found in WordPress and its associated plugins have tripled since 2017. Mm. While Internet of Things vulnerabilities have dropped significantly according to data collected by Imperva. Hmm. I guess it depends on how you count it. Yeah. I, 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 it all depends on how you skew the numbers for the statistics. Right? And it also depends on who's looking for these vulnerabilities in various places. How, what's our capability to detect vulnerabilities in WordPress, for example? Mm-hmm. WordPress, in my mind, is going to have, I mean, not just because it's WordPress, but a higher rate of vulnerabilities as they just presented at DerbyCon. It was DerbyCon where the WordPress security team presented and said, we're actively looking for more vulnerabilities and plugins. We've got examples of more secure coding. We're trying to, you know, get our arms around this problem. Say what you will about that effort. I applaud them for trying, certainly. But that effort has led to more WordPress vulnerabilities. And WordPress has been around for a really long time, right. as we've discussed. It's built upon architectures that's not easy to change, like uh-huh. PHP and, and others. So it's prone to more vulnerabilities. Sure. Some of these IoT devices haven't been around. We haven't had a chance to maybe discover all the vulnerabilities that we could. Also, that being said, 
I think in terms of discovering the vulnerability, harder to find something that's in firmware and proprietary code than yep. in open source and uh, code that and is of like PHP. And for arguably example. on IoT, I think about IoT and I look at the the stuff that's out there, and they're doing stuff implement implemented on the hardware side, you know, lower profile, lower RAM, lower, yes. and they're using tried and true methodologies and sometimes the older stuff. I mean. When was the last time you say saw Node.js on an IoT running on an IoT device? Right. Well, the other well, thing too, Larry, that, w that we experienced too when we were doing a lot more of this research was <coughs> anyone can go in WordPress as an example because they used it here. Anyone can go download some WordPress code, download right. some plugin codes, all open source, right? Yep, most of it. Yeah, and then. When you go say, well, I want to evaluate the security of this IoT device. Well, that device is $3,337. That's an expensive... That's a barrier to entry yes. to evaluate the security. So, anyway. Agreed. I think that was something that needed to be pointed out in this article. That is not to say that web vulnerabilities are not important. <laughs> I just think there's better ways to, to point that out. And you know me. I love to pick on surveys. It's nothing personal. It's just a hobby. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have a survey, you have to pick on it. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's right? a survey. <laughs> um, I tell you I'm what, right. <clears throat> those of us that have been doing Unix for a long time and now Linux, right? I'm, I miss a knit sometimes. I have to... <clears throat> sometimes. I miss a knit always. All the time. Always. <laughs> Every time I add them in a box. New systemd privilege escalation flaws are affecting most Linux distributions. Uh, two memory corruption and the third is an out of bounds. Um, the team that um, has not yet released full details on the exploit said they developed an exploit for two of the CVEs that obtains a root shell in 10 minutes and 70 minutes on AMD 64, 10 minutes on i386 on average. Interesting. I still miss it. In any case, that was really the only reason I added that was just to say that. Yeah. So. So Lee, I, uh, totally, I totally miss a knit. What the fuck? Over? I mean, what is this fucking system D bullshit? I, like I mean, because yeah, how was it? I don't understand how init was broken. And a lot of the new things, and, and right? You know that newer distributions have replaced. Broken. It, wasn't it wasn't broken. broken. So you, why, like, why are we fixing it if it's not broken? And you know what? Init is sh shorter to type than system control. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yeah, I, the I, I enemy the of good security. Uh, would they change from if config to IP command? Agree, Carlos. Why? What What was wrong with if config? Really? And and, and uh, you know, specifically the one of the one that drives me nuts under Raspbian is naming the interface under the after the MAC address of the device. So you create yeah, a script well, that yeah, uses whiskey, that, and then you put that SD card in another one, and it doesn't work anymore because the device name has changed because it's a different MAC address. Yeah. Fuck what you. was like wrong with What was one. wrong with ETH zero? Nothing. Like. Uh, it's I liked ETH zero. It was short and it was easy to type. BCM <laughs> MAC address. What? No. ENPS three zero. What e the exactly? Frick? Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. It's been said before. The enemy of good security is complexity, and you fucking add complexity, and shit is gonna go sideways. I'm and just saying. Don't get me started on Network yeah. Manager. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what the <laughs> Network Manager? How about another in hell is that thing? I was in a good mood till we just had that discussion. Now I'm angry. Although, <laughs> although, although, Let's talk about a chapel. although I have used NMCLI to good purpose <coughs> for scripting purposes. For that scripting, is. purposes. that's not what your wife told me. Oh, I wouldn't believe. I would believe it. 
Speaking so, of what your wife told me, how about Lee's story number one? Yeah, so, Lee's story number one. Do you guys remember Amazon Key, where you could have Amazon open up yeah. your house remotely and put your packages on site? Uh-huh. And, and so now, now they're they're partnering with LiftMaster Chamberlain, who have the MyQ system, where you can they'll open up your garage and put your package in there instead, which I thought is so much better, particularly as the camera that's inside your garage to see what malfeasance is up is an optional feature. Um, Yikes. Nothing could go wrong, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, we're right. <laughs> so the, the link I shared actually has the uh, sign up with MyQ to get notified when the, when we're doing this, just, just, just to really troll everybody. So, so Lee, the question uh, that I have is, and I, and I haven't read this story, uh, what is exactly is MyQ, do you know? Oh, that's the um, that's the automation they have for their uh, garage door opener, so you can open it from your phone or from other devices in the house. And okay, it. so that it, so does it? I have I have okay. that. So does it still use like the rolling code technology and and those mm -hmm. types of things? Well, or is, it, is it a new wireless protocol? I, I can tell you how mine works, and I'm not sure what um, is it Chamberlain Lee? Yeah, is Chamberlain is one garage door maker. Uh, I'm not sure how MyQ works, but um, you can buy like I have a Smart Things device. Yep. And you can buy something for your garage door, and it comes with two things. It comes with the the wireless uh, transmitter receiver, yep. which is either Z-Wave or Zigbee. I don't remember which. Okay. That talks to your SmartThings device. Okay. That has a physical cable that connects into your garage door opener, just like the physical button, just does like the physical the button, button. Okay. exactly. Yep. And then <clears throat> on the door, garage door itself, there's what's called a tilt sensor. So it's like a sensor that like has a ball in it. And that when the garage door goes up, it goes in one direction yep. and the other direction. So that sensor tells it whether yep. the door is it's open or, or close. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, that's all mine works. I don't know if Chamberlain has a similar yeah. thing. And, and, and that then thing, the, the yeah. interface is on your network. So it's uh, you. So basically, you can reach it from the internet. Right. So it's connected up to your garage door with that protocol. And then on your, on your wired network, it actually doesn't do 802.11. You actually have to give it an, uh, an, a cable. But basically, yeah, then... then it knows where the door is going up and down. You can reach it from your phone from wherever the hell you are. Um, and so they'll have an interface for the Amazon key device to, to, to pair with it. Yes. Yeah, I just think how many people, the garage, is, you know, if it's a standalone outside garage is one thing, but how many people, they close their garage, but the door inside the garage is unlocked. Mm. Oh, that's a lot of people. That's yes. Or how much, how much valuable stuff have you got in your garage, even if you're only in there? I mean... Yep. We got some cool shit in the garage, most of us. <laughs> I, I, I ran into this problem, the exact pro opposite of this problem the other day. Uh, we have the wireless garage door openers, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, our, the shop where we've recorded many old yeah. episodes from, uh, The currently the only entryway into the shop is through the roll-up garage door, mm -hmm. which is on uh, one of the wireless keypads. Mm-hmm. The actual door itself has shit piled in front of it and is locked from the inside. In fact, I don't even know where the keys are. Mm -hmm. The power went out, and I went to go into the shop. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. Bo Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I can't get in the garage. <laughs> don't you have a regular door on the other side? Yeah, it's, it's got, like, an arcade machine in front of the door. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You Random. still got in, I'm sure, I, some way. No, the I just... window or whatever. No, I just... There's a I, window in the back. There is. I, and, and that was locked. <laughs> it's actually there is there's a window there but it's been re replaced with a uh, a metal sheet because that's where the vent for the heater goes. I got out you. the window. Through the metal sheet. Mm -hmm. So the window's effectively a metal sheet. But uh 
that was my no i just left the stuff on the ground outside it was it was an extension cord that i mm-hmm. had to put away <laughs> yeah. i put it away the next morning when the power was on get the garage door opener with the battery back up yeah geek fail yep if i had really if i really needed to have gotten in i would have gotten in but. right <clears throat> In any case, our new we garage doors are stories? so heavy, we're not sure we could actually open them if we released the uh, cable. Even though they got the springs and stuff, they're still pretty damn heavy. Mm-hmm. So that reminds me uh, of an attack where the attackers would slide something above or below the door and pull the safety chain yep. to enable right. the manual open. Yep. Right. Yep. Next, must be some other stories here. Yeah. Who, did your Paul, your story number twelve, Paul, seems fascinating to me. Yeah. So uh, El Chapo was the Mexican uh, drug kingpin. Yep. Uh, there's a great documentary series too. Uh, it's called America's Book of Secrets. Kind of a sensationalized title. They say, "What if there was a a book with all of the secrets in it?" Right. <coughs> Excuse me. If you glance over that part, I don't know if it's History Channel. It's on Hulu. In any case. They go through different uh, topics and talk about conspiracy theories and actually present some pretty compelling evidence, in my opinion. Uh, they did one on uh, drugs in general and talked a lot about uh, the Mexican cartels and some of the conspiracy theories uh, about what was the the dr- the gun uh, thing. The consp- the, what was it? The It was when Obama was in office and we gave guns to the... Mexicans. Oh. What was that called? Oh. Fast and Furious? Was, yeah. it fast? <laughs> was it Fast and Furious? Yeah, that's what it was. It was, oh. yeah, it was, it was some kind of fuck up. Yeah. Yeah, it was some massive. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. yeah they talk about that. Uh, so, in any case, they're, now they're talking about um, El Chapo and, and how <clears throat> he's being prosecuted. But the thing that gave them evidence was a key witness who was his IT admin. And um, <clears throat> Rodriguez was the admin. They say in 2013, he suffered a nervous breakdown. Um, they said the stress was probably due to the fact he was working undercover for, <coughs> for the feds while in charge of uh, the communications network of an extremely violent criminal enterprise. Uh, Rodriguez then left the cartel unclear as to what circumstances or if the feds helped. Um, but then they had grown suspicious of their IT guy, uh, flipped in various enforcers, turned up looking for Rodriguez. Um, so they were coming after him. Uh, Rodriguez is still expected to appear as a witness in some point in the trial as the cis admin who took down a drug lord. My conspiracy theory on that yeah, is did the feds active. have something on him and he was mm. basically forced to turn? Otherwise, why would you put yourself well, yeah. at risk? Again, yeah, no kidding, I, the title of this episode, pure speculation. Yeah, the, my argue, <laughs> my pure speculation <laughs> is is that, yeah, they had something on him. He was yeah. the IT guy for El Chapo. Well, what? but <laughs> they could have, they could oh, have had something hilarious. else on him. You never know. Yeah. yeah. What didn't they have on him? I, and, and I do find interesting all of, uh, all of the stuff that have been coming out of uh, the trial itself. For example, one of the things that uh, El Chapo did was that he actually installed uh, commercial malware on his wife's uh, phone so he can track what his wife was actually doing. So what the FBI did is they went to the malware uh, company or the uh, monitoring software company and they asked him, hey, we want access to uh, this specific phone. Uh, They got access and they were able to collect all the texts between El Chapo and his wife, 
And it turned out that also he bought licenses to monitor his mistresses. Mm-hmm. So it, during trial, it also came out uh, to light all of the different texts that he was sending to his wife, their mistresses, and everybody else through this company. Uh, then the IT guy actually provided the uh, the keys for their VoIP system, so they were able to then track all of their VoIP calls. And what they did is, uh, since it seems that he was under quite a bit of surveillance by the cartel itself, they didn't trust him. So he says, oh, let's do an upgrade. Let's move all of our servers from Canada to Norway. As we're mo- as they were moving the servers, he was able to extract the keys and provide those to the FBI. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> it's a fascinating story. Uh, I, I have to say, because I'm I'm the ex crippy. Uh, if if he gave them a copies of the keys, they didn't technically crack anything. They just simply decrypted the That's data. That's true. Absolutely. Yep. It's all about who has the keys to the kingdom, or the drug kingdom, I guess. In this, which case. is yeah. typically how crypto is broken. It's true. Anyway, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was cool. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, speaking of which, did you want to did you want to mention you did have a sort of tangential NSA story in there? I did. Yeah. Which one was that? Uh, yeah, nine. <laughs> Kaspersky. Oh yeah, I I just read the headline on this one um, that it was uh, in the article titles it as it was an ironic turn that Kaspersky Labs has helped the NSA to catch an alleged data thief. Probably a good segue from what we were just talking about, right? Another software company right. helping federal agency yep. investigate well, well, criminals. Well, well, argu- it, but arguably one that has been thrown under the bus for being... Like a lot. For yeah. being you know, politically motivated for Putin. Right. Given that they're a Russian company. Yikes. Well, and and you know, I glanced through the article, and if I read it correctly, you know, all of this happened with the the guy from NSA. I think he was a contractor, who who isn't a contractor at NSA these days. Well, uh, that was just a, no. basically bringing all, home all sorts of secret data and hoarding it. Is it that guy? I think it was that guy. Mm-hmm. And he, and when he went to try to sell it, he started doing all sorts of weird tweets. And he tweeted some of the people at Kaspersky Labs, and Kaspersky said, "Well, that's kind of weird." And he co- contacted the NSA and said, "Something weird's happening." So it wasn't, you know, there was, it wasn't necessarily a technical thing; it was more of an opsec type of thing. Yep. Anyway, that's all the stories I had. That's all she wrote. Any other stories? Joff's calling it. Yeah, I say I, I, I'm I'm calling it. I, that's all she wrote. I the, think I think I sh- I should probably take us out. the The only other one was that that I had was uh was a story for Joff. Was the uh, Australian me. early uh, warning system? Oh, that was a classic, right? Yeah, yeah Joff, tell us all about your our <laughs> resident Australian expert, cultural ambassador attache to Australia. Cultural fucking attache. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, uh, fuck. I don't remember the story now, but uh, New South Wales fucked up. Um, <laughs> they done fucked up. 
Like they always do. Come on. I'm dying over here. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Where was the story? Larry, I didn't see the story. Where is the story? Oh, come on. So the... Uh, it's uh, number one under Larry's story. Yes. You're supposed to be an expert in all so, things Australia. So to quote the article, uh, Australian... I've got it. Okay. Early warning system, fuck up. That that was it. <laughs> they got uh, scary texts, emails, and phone calls. This sounds like Hawaii. It, it really yeah, does. It does. From a yeah. trusted emergency warning service late last week after a hacker, quote, hacker, broke into its systems and used it to send fake messages. Classic fuck up. Okay. Yep. Uh, EWM anyway, hack, uh, privacy alert. Yeah, EWM, EWM has, been hacked. has been hacked. Your personal data <laughs> is stored with us. It's not safe. We're trying to fix the security issues. Please contact blah, 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 blah. Anyway, apparently they moved quickly to uh, fix the issue. And I quote from the article, Lucky Aussies are a savvy bunch. Comments on the <laughs> Facebook post came mostly from people who said they'd received the message and deleted it as suspicious. Although a handful said they had clicked on the link and were now worried. <laughs> oh, fished. Anyway. Uh, Those Aussies are a savvy bunch. Savvy bunch. You know? <laughs> In other words, they're like, uh, fuck it. I'm drinking my beer and I give a, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. So what exactly, what beer is exactly are they drinking, Joff? Uh, they're Clearly probably not Foster's. Foster's. Clearly not Foster's. Uh, not some Foster's. They're probably drinking some VB or some 4X. Uh, maybe even some Cooper's Pale, and uh, that that they said fuck this shit, and I'm going back to my ordinary life. And, Joff, uh, thank you for those valuable insights into <laughs> Australian culture. I try to You've help major people proud. Yeah, and that's that's what it sounds like when somebody's not speculating, Paul. That's right. Yes, <laughs> speaks with authority on all things Australian security well, news related yeah, items. Yeah. When it comes to Australia, the one thing you can uh, guarantee is, is we're the shrimp will be on the barbie. We're a very pragmatic <laughs> bunch of people, <laughs> and fuck everybody if they don't like it. <laughs> That's and the way we roll. They can't put shrimp on the barbie because they have fucking prawns there. Yeah, we have prawns. <laughs> it's prawns on the barbie, not <laughs> shrimp. Prawns. And because they're Australia, prawns make shrimp look puny because they're shrimpy. Yeah, they're very large. Prawns are large. Okay, who's taking us out? <laughs> Joff. Uh, me. Joff. Okay, yeah. so having done the Australian story over and out. 